What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Part 6, Chapter 32 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Before Vronsky's departure for the election, Anna, coming to the conclusion that the scenes which had always taken place every time he left her for a journey might serve to cool his love rather than attach him more firmly to her, resolved to control herself to the best of her ability, so as to endure calmly the separation from him. But the cold, stern look which he had given her when he came to tell her about his journey had wounded her, and he was hardly out of her sight before her resolution was shaken. In her solitude, as she began to think over his cold look, which seemed to hint at a desire for liberty, she came back, as she always did, to one thing, to the consciousness of her humiliation. He has the right to go when and where he pleases, not only to go, but to abandon me. He has all the rights, and I have none. But as he knows this, he ought not to have done this. And yet what has he done? He looked at me with a hard, stern look. Of course, that is vague, intangible. Still, he did not formerly look at me so, and it signifies much, she thought. That look proves that he is growing cold toward me. And, although she was persuaded that he had begun to grow cold toward her, still there was nothing she could do. There was no change she could bring about in her relations toward him. Just as before, she could retain his affections only by her love, by her fascination. And, just as before, the only way she could keep herself from thinking what would happen if he should abandon her, she busied herself incessantly all day. At night she took morphine. To be sure, there was one means left, not to keep him with her. For this she wished nothing else but his love, but to bind him to her, to be in such a relation to him that he would not abandon her. This means was divorce and marriage, and she began to desire it, and resolved that she would agree to it the first time he or Steva spoke about it again. With such thoughts she spent five days without him, the five days he expected to be away. Drives and walks, conversations with the Princess Vibara, visits to the hospital, and, above all, reading, the reading of one book after another, occupied her time. But on the sixth day, when the coachman returned without bringing Vronsky, she felt that she no longer had strength enough to smother the thought about him and what he was doing at Kashin. Just at this very time her little girl was taken ill. Anna attended to her, but it did not divert her mind, the more as the little one was not dangerously ill. Do the best she could, she did not love this child, and she could not pretend to feelings which had no existence. On the evening of the sixth day, while she was entirely alone, she felt such apprehension about him that she almost made up her mind to start for the city herself, but after a long deliberation she wrote the prevaricating note and sent it by a special messenger. When, the next morning, she received his letter, she regretted hers. With horror she anticipated the repetition of that severe look which he would give her on his return, especially when he learned that his daughter had not been dangerously ill but still she was glad she had written him. Now Anna acknowledged to herself that he might be annoyed by her, that he might miss his liberty, but yet she was glad that he was coming. 
Suppose he was annoyed by her. Still he would be there with her so that she could see him, so that she should be aware of his every motion. She was sitting in the parlor, by the lamp, reading a new book of Taine's, listening to the sound of the wind outside, and watching every moment for the arrival of the carriage. Several times she thought that she heard the rumble of wheels, but she was deceived. At last she distinctly heard not only the wheels, but the coachman's voice, and the carriage rolling under the covered porch. The Princess Vivara, who was laying out a game of patience, heard it too. Anna's face flushed. She rose, but, instead of going down, as she had twice done already, she stopped. She was suddenly ashamed at her deception, and still more alarmed by the doubt as to how he would receive her. All her irritation had vanished. All she feared was Vronsky's displeasure. She remembered that her daughter for two days now had been perfectly well. She was annoyed that the child should recover just as she sent off the letter. And then she realized that he was there, himself, with his eyes, his hands. She heard his voice. Joy filled her heart, and, forgetting everything, she ran to meet him. "'How is Annie?' he asked anxiously, from the bottom of the stairs, as she ran swiftly down. He was seated in a chair, and his lackey was pulling off his furred boots. "'All right. Much better.' "'And you?' he asked, shaking himself. She seized his two hands and drew him towards her, looking into his eyes. "'Well, I am very glad,' he said, coldly surveying her, her headdress, her whole toilet, which, as he knew, had been put on expressly for him. All this pleased him, but how many times had the same thing pleased him? And that stony, severe expression, which Anna so much dreaded, remained on his face. "'Well, I am very glad. And how are you?' he asked, kissing her hand, after he had wiped his damp moustache. "'It is all the same to me,' thought Anna. "'If only he is here. And when he is here he cannot help loving me. He does not dare not to love me.' The evening passed pleasantly and merrily in the presence of the Princess Vivara, who complained to him that when he was away Anna took morphine. "'What can I do? I cannot sleep. My thoughts are distracting. When he is here, I never take it. Almost never.' Vronsky told about the elections, and Anna, by her questions, cleverly led him to talk about what especially pleased him, his own success. Then she told him all the interesting things that had happened since he went away, and took care to speak of nothing unpleasant. But late in the evening, when they were alone, Anna, seeing that she had him at her feet again, wished to efface the unpleasant effect of her letter. She said, "'Confess that you were displeased to receive my letter, and that you did not believe me.' As soon as she spoke she saw that, though he was affectionately disposed toward her, he did not forgive this. "'Yes,' answered he, "'your letter was strange. Annie was sick.' and yet you yourself wanted to come. Both were true. Well, I do not doubt it. Yes, you do doubt. I see that you are angry. Not for one minute. But what vexes me is that you will not admit that there are duties. What duties? Going to concerts? We won't talk about it. Why not talk about it? I only mean that imperious duties may meet us. Now, for instance, I shall have to go to Moscow on business. Ah, Anna, why are you so irritable? Don't you know that I cannot live without you? If this is the way, said Anna, changing her tone suddenly, then you are tired of this kind of life. Yes, you are home one day, 
and go away the next. Anna, this is cruel. I am ready to give up my whole life. But she would not listen to him. If you are going to Moscow, I shall go with you. I will not stay here alone. We must either live together or separate. But you know I ask nothing more than to live with you. But for that, the divorce is necessary. I will write him. I see that I cannot continue to live in this way. But I am going with you to Moscow. You really threaten me. But all I ask in the world is not to be separated from you, said Vronsky, smiling. As the Count spoke these affectionate words, the look in his eyes was not only icy, but wrathful, like that of a man persecuted and exasperated. She saw his look, and accurately read its meaning. If this is so, then it is misfortune, said this look. The expression was only momentary, but she never forgot it. Anna wrote to her husband, begging him to grant the divorce, and toward the end of November, after separating from the Princess Vavara, who had gone to Petersburg, she went to Moscow with Vronsky. Expecting every day to get Alexey Alexandrovitch's reply, and immediately afterward to secure the divorce, they set up their establishment as if they were married. End of chapter 32 and end of part 6 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle Part 7, Chapter 1 of Anna Karenina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part 7, Chapter 1. The Levins had been in Moscow for two months and the time fixed by competent authorities for Kitty's deliverance was already past. But she was still waiting, and there was no sign that the time was any nearer than it had been two months before. The doctor, and the midwife, and Dolly, and her mother, and especially Levin, who could not without terror think of the approaching event, now began to feel impatient and anxious. Kitty alone kept perfectly calm and happy. She now clearly recognized in her heart the birth of a new feeling of love for the child, which already partly existed for her, and she entertained this feeling with joy. The child was no longer only a part of her. Even now it already lived in its own independent life at times. This caused her suffering, but at the same time she felt like laughing, with a strange unknown joy. All whom she loved were with her, and all were so good to her, took such care of her, and tried so to make everything pleasant for her, that, if she had not known and felt that the end must soon come, this would have been the happiest and best part of her life. Only one thing clouded her perfect happiness, and this was that her husband was different from the leaven she loved, or the leaven that had lived in the country. She had loved his calm, gentle, and hospitable ways in the country. In the city he seemed all the time restless and on his guard, as if he feared that someone was going to insult him or her. There in the country he was usefully occupied, and seemed to know that he was in his place. Here in the city he was constantly on the go, as if he were afraid of forgetting something, but he had nothing really to do, and she felt sorry for him. But she knew that to his friends he was not an object of commiseration, and when in society she looked at him as one studies those who are beloved, endeavouring to look on him as a stranger, and see what effect he produced on others, she saw with anxiety the danger that she herself might become jealous of him for the reason that he was not at all pitiable, 
but rather an exceedingly attractive man by reason of his dignified, rather old-fashioned, shy politeness to ladies, his strong physique, and his very expressive face. But she read his inner nature. She saw that he was not himself, otherwise she could not define his actions. But sometimes in her heart she reproached him because he could not adapt himself to city life. Sometimes even she confessed that it was really difficult for him to conduct his life so as to please her. But, indeed, what could he find to do? He was not fond of cards. He did not go to the clubs. She now knew what it meant to frequent the company of high livers, like Oblonsky. It meant to drink and to go to places. She could not think without horror of where these men were in the habit of going. Should he go into society? She knew that to enjoy that it would be necessary to find pleasure in the company of young ladies, and she could not desire that. Then should he sit at home with her, with her mother, and her sister? But however pleasant these conversations might be to her, she knew that they must be wearisome to him. What, then, remained for him to do? Was he to go on with his book? He intended to do this, and began to make researches in the public library, but, as he confessed to Kitty, the more he had nothing to do, the less time he had. Moreover, he complained to her that too much was said about his book, and therefore his ideas were thrown into confusion, and that his interest in his work was flagging. One result of their life in Moscow was that there were no more quarrels between them, either because city conditions were different, or because both were beginning to be more guarded and prudent. The fact remained that, since they left the country, the scenes of jealousy which they feared might arise were not repeated. In these circumstances, one very important affair for them both took place. Kitty had a meeting with Vronsky. Kitty's godmother, the old Princess Maria Borisovna, was always very fond of her and wanted to see her. Kitty, though owing to her condition she was not going out now, went with her father to see the stately old princess, and there she met Vronsky. At this meeting Kitty could reproach herself only for the fact that for the moment when she first saw the features, once so familiar, she felt her heart beat fast and her face redden. But her emotion lasted only a few seconds. The old prince hastened to begin an animated conversation with Vronsky, and by the time he had finished Kitty was ready to look at Vronsky, or to talk with him, if need be, just as she was talking with the princess, and, what was more, without a smile or an intonation which would have been disagreeable to her husband, whose invisible presence, as it were, she felt near her at that moment. She exchanged some words with Vronsky, smiled serenely when he jestingly called the assembly at Kashin, our parliament. She had to smile so as to show that she understood the jest. Then she addressed herself to the old princess, and did not turn her head until Vronsky rose to take leave. Then she looked at him, but evidently it was only because it is impolite not to look at a man when he bows. She was grateful to her father because he said nothing about this meeting with Vronsky, but Kitty understood from his especial tenderness after their visit, during their usual walk, that he was satisfied with her. She felt satisfied with herself. She had never anticipated that she should have the strength of mind to remember all the details of her former feelings toward Vronsky, and yet to seem and to feel perfectly indifferent and calm in his presence. Levin turned far more crimson than she did when she told him about her meeting with Vronsky at the house of the Princess Maria Beresovna. It was very hard for her to tell him about it, and still harder to go on relating the details of the meeting, for the reason that he did not ask her a question, but only gazed at her and frowned. "'It was such a pity that you weren't there,' she said to her husband, "'not in the room. 
for before you I should not have been so self-possessed. I'm blushing now ever and ever so much more than I did then, said she, blushing till the tears came. But if you could have looked through the keyhole. Her sincere eyes told Levin that she was satisfied with her behavior, and, though she blushed, he immediately became calm. He asked her some questions, just as she wished him to do. When he had heard the whole story, even to the detail that she could not help blushing for the first second, and afterward was perfectly at her ease as if she had never met him before, Levin grew extraordinarily gay, and declared that he was glad of it, and that in future he should not behave so foolishly as he had done at the elections, but that when he met Vronsky again he should be as friendly as possible. "'It is so painful to look on him almost as an enemy, whom it is hard to meet. I am very, very glad.' End of chapter 1part seven chapter two of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel please don't forget to call it the bowls said kitty as her husband came into her room about eleven o'clock in the morning before going out i know that you are going to dine at the club because papa wrote to you but what are you going to do this morning i'm only going to katavasov's why are you going so early? He promised to introduce me to Metrov. He's a famous scholar from Petersburg. I want to talk over my book with him. Oh, yes. Wasn't it his article you were praising? Well, and after that? Possibly to the tribunal, about that affair of my sister's. Aren't you going to the concert? she asked. No. Why should I go alone? Do go. They're going to give those new pieces. It will interest you. I should certainly go. Well, at all events, I shall come home before dinner, he said, looking at his watch. Put on your best coat, so as to go to the Countess Bowles. Why, is that really necessary? Oh, certainly. The Count himself came here. Now, what does it cost you? You go, you sit down, you talk five minutes about the weather, then you get up and go. Well, you don't realize that I am so out of practice, that I feel abashed. How absurd it is for a strange man to come to a house, to sit down, to stay a little while without any business, to find himself in the way, feel awkward, and then go. Kitty laughed. Yes, but didn't you used to make calls before you were married? Yes, but I was always bashful, said he, and now I'm so out of the way of it that, by heavens, I would rather not have any dinner for two days than make this call. I'm so bashful. It seems to me as if they must take offence and say, Why do you come without business? No, they don't take offence. I will answer that for you, said Kitty, looking brightly into his face. She took his hand. Now, Prashai, please go. He kissed his wife's hand and was about to go when she stopped him. Kostya, do you know I have only fifty roubles left? Well, I will go and get some from the bank. How much do you want? said he, with his well-known expression of vexation. No, wait, she detained him by the arm. Let us talk about this a moment. This troubles me. I try not to buy anything unnecessary. Still, the money runs away. We must retrench somehow or other. Not at all, said Levin with a little cough, and looking askance upon her. She knew this cough. It was a sign of strong vexation, not with her, but with himself. He was actually discontented, 
not because much money was spent, but because he was reminded of what he wanted to forget. I have ordered Sokolov to sell the corn, and to get the rent of the mill in advance. We shall have money enough. No, but I fear that, as a general thing— No, not at all. Not at all, he repeated. Well, good-bye, darling. Sometimes I wish I hadn't listened to Mamma. How happy we were in the country. I tire you all, waiting for me, and the money we spend. Not at all. Not at all. Not one single time since we were married till now have I thought that things would have been better than they are. Truly, said she, looking into his face. He said that, thinking only to comfort her, but when he saw her gentle, honest eyes turned to him with an inquiring look, he repeated what he had said with his whole heart, and he remembered what was coming to them so soon. "'How do you feel this morning? Do you think it will be soon?' he asked, taking both her hands in his. "'I sometimes think that I don't think and don't know anything.' "'And you don't feel afraid?' She smiled disdainfully. "'Not the least bit. No, nothing will happen to-day. Don't worry.' If that is so, then I am going to Kalevasov's. I am going with Papa to take a little walk on the boulevard. We are going to see Dolly. I shall expect you back before dinner. Oh, there! Do you know Dolly's position is getting to be entirely unendurable? She is in debt on every side, and hasn't any money at all. We talked about it yesterday with Mamma and Arseny. This was her sister Natalia Luvla's husband. And they decided that you should scold Steva. It is truly unendurable. It is impossible for Papa to speak about it. But if you and he— Well, what can we do? asked Levin. You had better go to Arseny's and talk with him. He will tell you what we decided about it. All right. I will follow Arseny's advice. Then I will go directly to his house. And by the way, if he is still at the concert, then I will go with Natalie. So, good-bye. On the staircase, the old bachelor's servant, Kuzma, who acted in the city as steward, stopped his master. Krasovitchka has just been shod, and it lamed her. This was Levin's left pole horse, which he had brought from the country. "'What shall I do?' said he. When Levin established himself in Moscow, he brought his horses from the country. He wished to set up as good a stable as possible, but not to have it cost too much. It seemed to him now that hired horses would have been less expensive, and even as it was, he was often obliged to hire of the Izvoschek. "'Take her to the veterinary. Perhaps she is going to have a swimmer.' "'Well, how shall you arrange for Katerina Alexandrovna?' asked Kuzma. Levin was now no longer troubled, as he had been at first, when he first came to Moscow, that for the drive from Vraz to Zensko, to Zinstev Vrazdek, it was necessary to have a span of heavy horses harnessed into his heavy carriage, and to drive at four versts, through mealy snow, and keep them waiting four hours there, and to have to pay five roubles for it. Now it seemed to him the natural thing to do. "'Get a pair of horses from the Izvozchek, and put them into our carriage.' "'I will obey.' After having thus decided simply and quickly, thanks to his training in city ways, a labor which in the country would have cost him much trouble and attention, Levin went out on the porch, and— beckoning to an Izvozchik, took his seat in the cab, and rode off to the Nikitskaya street. On the way the question of money did not occupy him, but he thought over how he was going to make the acquaintance of the sociological savant from Petersburg, and what he should say to him in regard to his treatise. 
It was only during the first part of his stay in Moscow that Levin, who had been used to the productive ways of the country, was amazed at the strange and unavoidable expenses which met him on every side. But now he was wanted to them. He had somewhat the same experience as he had been told drunken men went through. Each successive glass made him more reckless. When Levin took the first hundred-ruble note for the purchase of liveries for the lackey and Swiss, he could not avoid the consideration that these liveries were wholly useless to any one, and yet they seemed to be unavoidable and indispensable, judging from the amazement of Kitty and her mother, when he made the remark that they might go without them, and he put it to himself that the liveries represented the wages of two laborers for a year, that is to say, about three hundred working days from early in the morning till late at night, so that the first hundred-ruble note corresponded to the first glass. But the second bill of twenty-eight roubles, expended for the purchase of provisions for a family dinner, caused him less trouble, though he still mentally computed that this money represented nine chetverts, or more than fifty bushels, of oats, which these same workmen, at the cost of many groans, had mowed, bound into sheaves, threshed, winnowed, gathered up, and put into bags. And now the money spent in this way had long ceased to evoke any such considerations, but they flew around him like little birds. He had long ceased to ask himself whether the pleasure purchased by this money was anywhere near commensurate with the labor spent in acquiring it. He also forgot the common principle of economics, that there is a certain price below which it is impossible to sell grain except at a loss. His rye, the price of which he had kept up so long, had to be sold at ten kopecks a bushel cheaper than he had sold it a month earlier. Even the calculation that if he kept on at his present rate of expenditure it would be impossible to get through the year without getting into debt did not cause him any anxiety. Only one thing troubled him, the keeping up his bank account, without asking how, so that there might be always enough for the daily needs of the household. And up to the present time he had succeeded in doing this. But now his deposit at the bank had run low, and he did not know exactly how to restore it. And this problem was causing him some anxiety just at the time when Kitty asked him for more money. But he did not want to bother about that just now. So he drove away, thinking of Katavasov and his approaching acquaintance with Metrov. End of chapter 2 Part 7, Chapter 3 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. During his present stay in Moscow, Levin had once more come into intimate relationship with his old university friend, Professor Katavasov, whom he had not seen since the time of his marriage. Katavasov was agreeable to him because of the clearness and simplicity of his philosophy. Levin thought that the clearness of his philosophy arose from the poverty of his nature while Katavasov thought that the incoherence of Levin's ideas arose from a lack of mental discipline. But Katavasov's lucidity was agreeable to Levin, and Levin's fecundity of undisciplined ideas was agreeable to Katavasov, and they both liked to meet and discuss together. Levin had read several passages from his treatise to Katavasov, who had liked them. The evening before, Katavasov, happening to meet Levin at a public lecture, told him that the celebrated scholar, Professor Metrov, whose article had pleased Levin, was in Moscow, and was greatly interested in what he had heard of Levin's work. He was to be at Katavasov's house the next day at eleven o'clock, and would be delighted to make Levin's acquaintance. 
Delighted to see you, Batyushka, said Katavasov, receiving Levin in his reception room. I heard the bell, and wondered if it could be time. And now, what do you think of the Montenegrins? It looks to me like war. What makes you think so? asked Levin. Katavasov, in a few words, told him the latest news, and then, taking him into his library, introduced him to a short, thick-set, and very pleasant-looking man. It was Metrov. The conversation for a short time turned on politics, and on the views held by the high authorities in Petersburg in regard to the recent elections. Metrov, in regard to this, quoted some significant words spoken by the Emperor and one of the ministers, which he had heard from a reliable source. Katavasov had heard from an equally reliable source that the Emperor had said something quite different. Levin tried to imagine to himself the conditions in which the words in either case might have been said, and the conversation on this theme came to an end. Well, here is the gentleman who is writing a book on the natural condition of the laborer in relation to the soil, said Katavasov. I am not a specialist, but it pleases me as a naturalist that he does not consider the human race outside zoological laws, but recognizes man's dependence on his environment, and seeks to find in this dependence the laws of his development. That is very interesting, said Metrov. I began simply to write a book on rural economy, said Levin, reddening. But in studying the principal instrument, the laborer, I arrived at a decidedly unexpected conclusion, in spite of myself. And Levin expatiated on his ideas, trying the ground carefully as he did so, for he knew that Metrov had written an article against the current views on political economy, and how far he could hope for sympathy in his new views he did not know, and could not tell from the scholar's calm, intellectual face. "'How, in your opinion, does the Russian laborer differ from that of other peoples?' asked Metrov. "'Is it from the point of view which you call zoological, or from that of the material conditions in which he finds himself?' This way of putting the question proved to Levin how widely their opinions diverged. Nevertheless, he continued to set forth his theory, which was based on the idea that the Russian people could not have the same relation to the soil as the other European nations, and to prove this position, he hastened to add that, in his opinion, the Russian people feels instinctively predestined to populate the immense uncultivated tracts stretching toward the east. It is easy to be mistaken about the general destiny of a people, by forming premature conclusions, said Metrov, interrupting Levin, and the situation of the laborer will always depend on his relation to land and capital. And, without giving Levin time to reply, he began to explain the peculiarity of his own views. Levin did not understand, because he did not try to understand, in what consisted the peculiarity of his views. He saw that Metrov, like all the rest, notwithstanding his article, in which he refuted the teachings of the economists, looked on the condition of the Russian people from the standpoint of capital, wages, and rent, though he was obliged to confess that for the eastern, and by far the greater part of Russia, there was no such thing as rent. That for nine-tenths of Russia's eighty millions, wages consisted in a bare subsistence, and the capital did not yet exist, except as it was represented by the most primitive tools. Although Metrov differed from other political economists, in many ways he regarded the laborer from this point of view, and he had a new theory as to wages, which he demonstrated at length. 
Levin listened with some disgust, and tried to reply. He wanted to interrupt Metrov, in order to express his own opinions, which he felt deserved to be heard at far greater length. But, finally recognizing that they looked on the subject from such a radically opposite standpoint that they could never understand each other, he no longer tried to refute him. He let Metrov talk, and only listened. Though he was not at all interested in what he said, nevertheless he experienced a certain pleasure in listening to him. He was flattered that such a learned man would condescend to give him the benefit of his thoughts, sometimes by a hint pointing to a complete phase of the subject, and showing him so much deference as to one thoroughly versed in the subject. He ascribed this to his own merits. He did not know that Metrov, having talked this over with all his own intimates on this subject, was glad to have a new auditor, and, moreover, that he liked to talk with anyone on the subjects that occupied him, so as to elucidate certain points for his own benefit. "'We shall be late,' remarked Katavasov, consulting his watch as soon as Metrov had concluded his argument. "'Yes, there is a special session to-day of the Society of Friends, in honour of the semi-centennial of Svintich,' he added in reply to Levin's question. "'We meet at the house of Pyotr Ivanuitch. I promised to speak on his work in zoology. Come with us. It will be interesting.' "'Yes, it is high time,' said Metrov. "'Come with us, and then afterward, if you like, come home with me. I should greatly like to hear your work.' "'It is only a sketch. Not worth much. But I should like to go with you to the session.' "'What is that, Batyushka? Have you heard?' "'He gave a special opinion,' said Katavasov, who was putting on his dress-coat in the next room. And the talk turned to the university question. The university question was a very important topic this winter in Moscow. Three old professors in the council would not accept the opinion of the younger ones. The younger ones expressed a special opinion. This opinion, according to some, was dreadful, according to others, was the simplest and most righteous of opinions, and the professors were divided into two parties. The one to which Katavasov belonged saw in the opposition dastardly violation of faith and deception. The other side charged their opponents with childishness and lack of confidence in the authorities. Levin, although he was not connected with the university, had heard and talked much during his stay in Moscow regarding this affair, and had his own opinion regarding it. So he took part in the conversation, which was continued even after they had got out into the street, and until they had all three reached the buildings of the old university. The session had already begun. Six men were sitting around a table covered with a cloth, and one of them, nearly doubled up over a manuscript, was reading something. Katavasov and Metrov took their places at the table. Levin sat down in an unoccupied chair near a student, and asked him in a low voice what they were reading. The student, looking angrily at Levin, replied, The biography. Levin did not care much for the savant's biography. Still, he could not help listening, and he learned various interesting particulars of the life of the celebrated man. When the reader came to an end, the chairman congratulated him, and then read some verses which had been sent to him in honor of the occasion by the poet Mient, of whose work he spoke eulogistically. Then Katavasov read in his loud, harsh voice a sketch of the work of Svintich. When Katavasov had finished, Levin looked at his watch and found that it was already two o'clock. He realized that he should lose the concert if he should read his treatise to Metrov, and, moreover, he no longer cared to do it. 
During the reading of the papers he had come to a conclusion regarding the conversation he had just had. It was clear to his own mind that, though Metrov's ideas very likely had some value, yet his own ideas also had value, and that ideas could be made clear and profitable only when every person should work separately in his chosen path, but that the communication of these ideas was perfectly profitless. And, having decided to decline Metrov's invitation, Levin at the end of the session went up to him. Metrov introduced Levin to the chairman, with whom he was talking about the political news. Thereupon Metrov told the chairman what he had already told Levin, and Levin made the same remarks as he had made that morning, but for the sake of variety he also told his new theory, which had just come into his mind. After this the conversation again turned on the university question. As Levin had already heard as much as he cared to about this, he made haste to tell Metrov that he regretted that he could not accept his invitation, bade him good-bye, and hastened to Lvov's. End of chapter 3 Part 7, Chapter 4 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Lvov, who had married Natalie, Kitty's sister, had spent his life in the European capitals, where he had not only received his education, but had also pursued his diplomatic career. The year before he had resigned his diplomatic appointment, not because it was distasteful to him, for he never found anything distasteful to him, and had accepted a position in the department of the palace in Moscow, so that he might be able to give a better education to his two sons. In spite of very different opinions and habits, and the fact that Lvov was considerably older than Levin, they had seen much of each other this autumn, and had become great friends. Levin found his brother-in-law at home, and went in without ceremony. Lvov, in a housecoat with a belt, and in chamois-skin slippers, was sitting in an armchair, and with blue glasses was reading a book which rested on a stand, while he held a half-burned cigar in his shapely hand. His handsome, delicate, and still youthful face, to which his shining, silvery hair gave an expression of aristocratic dignity, lighted up with a smile as he saw Levin. "'Good! I was just going to send to find out about you all. How is Kitty?' said he, and rising, he pushed forward a rocking-chair. "'Sit down here. You'll find this better. Have you read the last circular in the Journal de St. Petersburg? I find it excellent.' said he, with a slight French accent. Levin informed him of what he had heard as to the reports in circulation at Petersburg, and, after having spoken of politics, he told about his acquaintance with Metrov and the session at the university. This greatly interested Lvov. "'There, I envy you your intimacy in that learned society,' said he, and he went on speaking, not in Russian, but in French, which was far more familiar to him." True, I could not meet them very well. My public duties, and my occupation with the children, would prevent it. And then, I do not feel ashamed to say that my own education is too faulty. I can't think that, said Levin, with a smile, and, as always, touched by his modest opinion of himself, expressed not for the sake of bringing out a flattering contradiction, but genuine and honest. Oh, dear, I now feel how little I know— now that I am educating my sons, I am obliged to refresh my memory. I learn my lessons over again, just as in your estate, 
you have to have workers and overseers. So here it needs someone to watch the teachers. But see what I am reading. And he pointed to the grammar of Buzleoff lying on the stand. Misha has to learn it, and it is so hard. Now explain this to me. Levin wanted to explain to him that it was impossible to understand it, that it simply had to be learned. But Lvov did not agree with him. Yes, now you are making fun of it. On the contrary, you can't imagine how much I learn, when I look at you, about the way to teach children. Well, you could not learn much from me. I only know that I never saw children so well brought up as yours, and I should not want better children than yours. Lvov evidently wanted to restrain himself so as not to betray his satisfaction, but his face lighted up with a smile. Only let them be better than I. That is all that I want. But you don't know the bother, he began, with lads who, like mine, have been allowed to run wild abroad. You are regulating all that. They are such capable children. The main thing is their moral training. And this is what I learn in looking at your children. You speak of the moral training. You can't imagine how hard it is. Just as soon as you have conquered one crop of weeds, others spring up and there is always a fight. If you don't have support in religion, between ourselves, no father on earth, relying on his own strength and without this help, could ever succeed in training them. This conversation, which was extremely interesting to Levin, was interrupted by the pretty Natalie Alexandrovna, dressed for going out. "'I didn't know you were here,' said she to Levin, evidently not regretting, but even rejoicing that she had interrupted his conversation, which was too long for her pleasure. "'Well, and how is Kitty? I am going to dine with you today. See here, Arseny,' she said, turning to her husband, "'you take the carriage.' And between husband and wife began a discussion of the question how they should spend the day. As the husband had to attend to his official business, and the wife was going to the concert into a public session of the Committee of the South East, it was needful to discuss and think it all over. Levin, as a member of the family, was obliged to take part in these plans. It was decided that he should go with Natalie to the concert and to the public meeting, and then send the carriage to the office for Arseny, who would come and take her to Kitty's, or if he was not yet ready, Levin would serve as her escort. "'This man is spoiling me,' said Lvov to his wife. "'He assures me that our children are lovely, when I know that they are full of faults.' "'Arseny goes to extremes. I always say so.' said his wife. If you expect perfection, you will never be satisfied. And Papa is right in saying that when we were children, they went to one extreme. They kept us on the entresol, while the parents lived in the bellotage. But now, on the contrary, parents live in the lumber-room, and the children in the bellotage. The parents are now of no account. Everything must be for the children. Supposing this is more agreeable, suggested Lvov, with his winning smile, as he offered her his arm. Anyone not knowing you would think that you were not a mother, but a stepmother. No, it is not good to go to extremes in anything, said Natalie, gently, laying his paper-cutter in its proper place on the table. Ah, here they are. Come in, ye perfect children, said Lvov to the handsome lads who came in and, after bowing to Levin, went to their father, evidently wishing to ask some favor of him. Levin wanted to speak with them, and to hear what they said to their father. But Natalie was talking with him, and just then Lvov's colleague, Makhotin, 
in his court uniform, came into the room, and began a lively conversation about Herzegovina, the Princess Korzynski, and the premature death of Madame Apraxin. Levin forgot all about Kitty's message. He remembered it just as they reached the vestibule. "'Oh, Kitty commissioned me to speak with you about Oblonsky,' said he, as Lvov went with them to the head of the staircase. "'Yes, yes. Maman wants us, les beaux-frères, to attack him,' said Lvov, turning red. "'But how can I?' "'Then I will undertake it,' said the smiling Madame Lvov, who, wrapped up in her white dogskin rotunda, was waiting till they should finish talking. End of chapter 4 Part 7, Chapter 5 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Two very interesting pieces were to be given at the matinee. One was a fantasia, or symphonic poem, called The King Lear of the Steps. The other was a quartet dedicated to the memory of Bach. Both pieces were new and of the new school, and Levin desired to form his own opinion in regard to them. So, after he had conducted his sister-in-law to her place, he took his stand near a column, and determined to listen as attentively and conscientiously as possible. He tried not to allow his attention to be distracted and his impression spoiled by letting his eyes follow the white cravatted Kappelmeister's waving arms, which were always so disturbing to the musical attention, or by looking at the ladies in their hats, who for concerts take especial pains to tie ribbons round their ears, or at all the faces either occupied with nothing or occupied with the most heterogeneous interests, music being the last. He tried to avoid meeting the connoisseurs and the chatterers, but he stood alone by himself, looking down and listening. But the more he listened to the King Lear, Fantasia, the more he felt the impossibility of forming a clear and exact idea of it. The musical thought, at the moment of its development, was constantly interrupted by the introduction of new themes, or vanished, leaving only the impression of a complicated and laborious attempt at instrumentation. But these same new themes, beautiful as some of them were, gave an unpleasant impression, because they were not expected or prepared for. Gaiety and sadness and despair and tenderness and triumph followed one another like the incoherent thoughts of a madman, to be themselves followed by others as wild. During the whole performance Levin experienced a feeling analogous to what a deaf man might have in looking at dancers. He was in a state of utter dubiety when the piece came to an end, and he felt a great weariness from the strain of intellectual intensity which was never rewarded. On all sides were heard loud applause and clapping of hands. All got up and moved about, talking. Wishing to get some light on his doubts by the impressions of others, Levin began to walk about, seeking for the connoisseurs, and he was glad when at last he saw one of the best-known musical critics talking with his friend Pestov. "'It's wonderful,' said Pestov, in his deep bass. "'How are you, Konstantin Dmitrich? "'The passage that is the richest in colour, the most statuesque, so to speak, "'is that where Cordelia appears, where woman, das ewig weibliche, "'comes into conflict with fate. Don't you think so?' "'Why Cordelia?' asked Levin, with hesitation, "'for he had wholly forgotten that the symphonic poem had anything to do with King Lear.' "'Cordelia appears here,' said Pestov, 
tapping with his finger on the satin program which he held in his hand. Then only did Levin notice the title of the symphonic poem, and he made haste to read the text of Shakespeare, translated into Russian and printed on the back of the program. "'You can't follow it without that,' said Pestov, addressing Levin, now that his friend, the critic, had gone, and there was nothing more to talk with him about. Levin and Pestov spent the intermission in discussing the merits and defects of the Wagnerian tendencies in music. Levin maintained that the mistake of Wagner and all his followers consisted in transferring music to the domain of an alien art, that poetry made the mistake when it tried to depict the features of the human face, which was the province of painting to do, and as a concrete example of this kind of a mistake, he adduced the sculptor, who should try to express in marble the shades of poetic imagery rising round the figure of the poet on the pedestal. These shades are so far from being shades in the case of the sculptor, that they even rest on the steps, said Levin. This phrase pleased him, but he had a lurking suspicion that he had once used the same phrase before, and to Pestov himself, and he felt confused. Pestov argued that art is one, and that it can reach its loftiest manifestations only by combining all its forms. Levin could not listen to the second number on the program. Pestov, who was standing near him, kept talking to him most of the time, criticizing it for its excessive, mawkish, affected simplicity, and comparing it to the simplicity of the pre-Raphaelites in painting. On his way out, he met various acquaintances, with whom he exchanged remarks on politics, music, and other topics. Among others he saw Count Bol, and the call which he should have made on him came to mind. "'Well, go quickly,' said Natalie, to whom he confided this. "'Perhaps the Countess is not receiving. If so, you will come and join me at the meeting. You have plenty of time.'" End of chapter 5Part 7, Chapter 6 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Perhaps they are not receiving, asked Levin, as he entered the vestibule of Count Bol's house. Oh, yes, permit me, answered the Swiss, resolutely taking the visitor's shuba. What a nuisance, thought Levin, drawing off one of his gloves with a sigh and turning his hat in his hands. Now, why did I come? Now, what am I going to say to them? Passing through the first drawing-room, he met the Countess Bull at the door, who, with a perplexed and severe face, was giving orders to a servant. When she saw Levin, she smiled, and invited him to walk into a small parlour, where voices were heard. In this room were sitting her two daughters, and a Muscovite colonel whom Levin knew. Levin joined them, passed the usual compliments, and sat down near a divan, holding his hat on his knee. "'How is your wife? Have you been to the concert? We were not able to go. Mamma had to attend to the requiem,' said one of the young ladies. "'Yes, I heard about it. What a sudden death,' said Levin. The Countess came in, sat down on the divan, and asked also about his wife and the concert. Levin replied, and asked some questions about the sudden death of Madame Apraxin. But then, she was always in delicate health. Were you at the opera yesterday? Yes, I was. Lucha was very good. Yes, very good, said he, and he began, seeing that it was entirely immaterial to him what they thought about him, 
to repeat what he had heard a hundred times about the singer's extraordinary talent. The Countess Bowl pretended that she was listening. Then, when he had said all he had to say, and relapsed into silence, the Colonel, who had hitherto held his peace, began also to speak. The Colonel also talked about the opera, and about an illumination. Then, saying something about a supposititious journée at Turin, the Colonel, laughing, got up and took his departure. Levin also got up, but a look of surprise on the Countess's face told him that it was not yet time for him to go. Two minutes more, at least, were necessary. He sat down. But, as he thought what a foolish figure he was cutting, he was more and more incapable of finding a subject of conversation. "'Are you going to the public meeting?' asked the Countess. "'They say it will be very interesting.' "'No. But I promised my belsoir that I would call for her there.' replied Levin. Silence again ensued. The mother exchanged a look with her daughter. "'Now it must be time to go,' thought Levin, and he rose. The lady shook hands with him, and charged him with mille choses for his wife. The Swiss, as he put on his shuba for him, asked his address, and wrote it gravely in a large, handsomely bound book. "'Of course, it's always the same to me, but how useless and ridiculous it all is,' thought Levin comforting himself with the thought that every one did the same thing, and he went to the public meeting of the committee, where he was to find his sister-in-law to bring her home with him. At the public meeting of the committee there was a great throng of people, and society was well represented. Levin reached the place just in time to hear a sketch which all said was very interesting. When the reading of the sketch was finished, society came together, and Levin met Sviatsky, who invited him to come that very evening to a meeting of the Society of Rural Economy, at which a very important report was to be read. He also met Stefan Arkadyevitch, who had just returned from the races, and many other acquaintances, and Levin talked much and heard many opinions relating to the meeting and the new peace and the lawsuit. But apparently in consequence of his weariness and the strain which he began to feel, he made a blunder in speaking of a certain lawsuit, and this blunder he afterward remembered with annoyance. Speaking of the recent punishment of a foreigner who had been tried in Russia, and that it would have been irregular to punish him by exile, Levin repeated what he had heard the evening before in a conversation with a friend of his. "'I think that to send him abroad is just the same as to punish a fish by throwing it into the water,' said Levin. Too late he remembered that his comparison which he put forth to express his thought, though he had heard his friend use it, was really taken from a fable by Krulov, and that his friend had taken it from the feuilleton of a newspaper. Returning home with his sister-in-law, and finding Kitty well and happy, Levin went to the club. End of chapter 6 Part 7, Chapter 7 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle the slipper-box recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Levin reached the club very punctually. A number of the guests and members arrived there at the same time as he did. Levin had not been at the club very recently. Indeed, not since the time when, having finished his studies at the university, he passed a winter at Moscow and went into society. He remembered the club in a general sort of way, but had entirely forgotten the impressions which, in former days, it had made upon him. But as soon as he entered the great semicircular dvor, or court, sent away his svazchik, 
and mounted the steps and saw the liveried Swiss noiselessly open the door for him, and bow as he ushered him in. As soon as he saw in the cloak-room the galoshes and shubas of the members, who felt that it was less work to take them off downstairs, and leave them with the Swiss, than to wear them upstairs, as soon as he heard the well-known mysterious sound of the bell, and as soon as he mounted the easy flight of carpeted stairs, and saw the statue on the landing, and on the upper floor recognized the third Swiss in his club livery, who, having grown older, displayed neither dilatoriousness nor haste in opening the door for him, he once more felt the old-time impression of the club, the atmosphere of comfort, ease, and good breeding. "'Your hat, if you please,' said the Swiss to Levin, who had forgotten the rule of the club to leave hats at the cloakroom. "'It's a long time since you were here,' said the Swiss. "'The prince wrote to you yesterday. Prince Stefan Arkadyevitch has not come yet.' The Swiss knew not only Levin, but all his connections and family, and took pleasure in reminding him of his relationships. Passing through the first connecting hall, and the conversation-room at the right where the fruit-dealer sits, Levin, who walked faster than the old attendant, entered the dining-room, which was filled with a noisy throng. He made his way along by the tables, almost all of which were occupied. As he looked about him on all sides, he saw men of the most heterogeneous types, old and young, most of them acquaintances, and many of them friends. It seemed as if all of them had left their cares and worries with their hats in the cloak-room, and had collected together to make the most of the material advantages of life. There were Sviatsky, and Sherbatsky, and Nevyadovsky, and the old prince, and Vronsky, and Sergey Ivanovitch. "'Ah, why are you late?' said the prince, with a smile, extending his hand to his son-in-law over his shoulder. "'How is Kitty?' he added, putting a corner of his napkin into the buttonhole of his waistcoat. "'She is well, and dining with her sisters.' "'Ah, the old gossips! Well, there's no room with us. Go to that table there, and get a seat as quickly as you can,' said the prince, taking care with a plate of uka, or soup made of loats. "'Here, Levin!' cried a jovial voice, from a table a little farther away. It was Trofsuin. He was sitting with a young officer, and near him were two chairs tilted up. Levin, with joy, went to join him. He always liked the good-hearted, prodigal Trotsuin. His reconciliation with Kitty was connected with him, and now, especially, after all his wearisome intellectual conversations, the sight of his jolly face was delightful. "'These places were for you and Blonsky. He will be here directly,' said Trotsuin. And then he introduced Levin to the young officer, who held himself very straight and had bright, laughing eyes. Gagin, from Petersburg. Oblonsky is always late. Ah, here he is. You've only just come, haven't you? asked Oblonsky of Levin, hurrying up to him. Your health. Will you take vodka? Come on, then. Levin got up and went with him to a large table, on which all kinds of liquors and a most select zakuska were set out. It would seem as if the two dozen different kinds of drinks might have offered a choice, but Stefan Arkadyevitch thought good to ask for a special concoction, which a servant in livery hastened to get for him. They drank it from small glasses, and then returned to their places. At the very first, even while they were eating their uka, Gagin had champagne served, and he ordered the four glasses filled. Levin did not refuse the wine when it was offered to him, and he in turn ordered a bottle. He was hungry, and ate and drank with great satisfaction, 
and with still greater satisfaction took part in the gay and lively conversation of his neighbors. Gagin, lowering his voice, told a new Petersburg anecdote, and, though it was indecorous and ridiculous, it was so funny that Levin laughed uproariously till those around him looked at him in surprise. "'That is in the same kind as, "'Alas, I cannot endure it,' quoted Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Do you remember? Ah, oh, it was lovely. "'Bring us another bottle,' said he to the lackey, and he began to tell an anecdote. "'Pyotr Ilyich Vinovsky sends these,' interrupted a little old lackey, addressing Stefan Arkadyevitch, and bringing two diminutive glasses of bubbling champagne, and offering them to Oblonsky and Levin. Stefan Arkadyevitch took the glass, and, exchanging glances with a bald, ruddy, mustachioed man at the other end of the table, nodded to him and smiled. "'Who is that?' asked Levin. "'You met him at my house once. Don't you remember? He's a very good fellow.' Levin followed Oblonsky's example, and took his glass. Stefan Arkadyevitch's anecdote was also very diverting. Then Levin had a story to tell, and it likewise raised a laugh. Then the conversation turned on horses, and the races that had taken place that day, and they told how brilliantly Vronsky's trotter, Atlas Nui, had won the first prize. "'Ah, here they are,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, toward the end of the dinner, turning round in his chair to extend his hand to Vronsky, who was walking with a tall colonel of the guards. Vronsky's face was also radiant with the good-natured gaiety that reigned in the club. He leaned his elbow on Oblonsky's shoulder, and whispered some words in his ear with an air of good humor, and extended his hand with a friendly smile to Levin. "'I am very glad to meet you,' said he. "'I looked for you after the elections, but they told me you had gone.' "'Yes. I went away the same day. We have just been speaking of your trotter. It was a very fast race.' "'Yes, it was. Haven't you race horses too?' "'I? No.' My father had horses, and I know about them. "'Where did you dine?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'At the second table, behind the columns.' "'He has been loaded down with congratulations. It's very pretty. A second imperial prize. I wish I could only have the same luck at play as he does with horses. Now, how they waste golden time. I am going to the infernal Neya,' said the tall colonel, and he left them. "'That's Yashvin,' said Vronsky to Trotsuin and sat down in a vacant place near them. Having drained the glass of champagne which was filled for him, he also ordered a bottle. Either from the effect of the wine which he had drunk, or from the social atmosphere of the club, Levin talked cordially with him about the best breeds of cattle, and was happy to feel no more hatred against his former rival. He even told him, among other things, that he had heard from his wife of the meeting which had taken place at the house of the Princess Maria Beresovna. Ah! the Princess Maria Beresovna. She's a charmer, exclaimed Stefan Arkadyevitch, and he told an anecdote of the old lady which made everyone laugh. Especially Vronsky laughed so heartily that Levin felt perfectly reconciled to him. Well, gentlemen, have we finished? said Oblonsky, getting up and smiling. Then let us go. End of chapter 7《パート7》Chapter 8 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. On leaving the table, Levin, in company with Gagin, walked through the lofty rooms to the billiard room, and he felt that his walk was singularly straight, and that his hands moved easily. 
in the large hall he met his father-in-law well and how do you like our temple of indolence asked the old prince taking his son-in-law by the arm come take a turn i should like to look around it is interesting yes to you but my interest in it is different from yours when you see old men like that said he indicating a member of the club who with stooping shoulders and falling lip was slowly shuffling along in soft boots across the hall you would think that they were born schlupiks why do you call them little sloops here you are and don't know what that means that's our club term you know how eggs roll well when anyone goes with a gait like that he becomes a schlupik and so when any one of us goes stumbling through the club he becomes a schlupik you laugh do you but one has to look out else he finds himself one do you know prince chichensky he asked and levin saw by his face that he was going to tell some ridiculous yarn no i don't know him well no matter prince chichensky is famous well that is neither here nor there he's always playing billiards three years ago he wasn't among the shalupiks but was a great galliard he himself called other people shalupiks only he came one time but our swiss you know vasily our tall one he is a great bomotist prince chichensky asked him well vasily is any one here yet have any shalupiks come and vasily answers you are the third now brother how is that the two men walked on chatting and greeting their friends and passed through all the rooms the main room where men accustomed to one another as partners were playing cards for small stakes the divan room where others were having games of chess and sergey ivanovitch was talking with someone the billiard room where in the bay of the room around a divan a gay party among them gagin had gathered and were drinking champagne they glanced in also at the infernal naya where at the gambling table yashvin surrounded by men betting was already established with hushed voices they entered the reading room where under a shaded lamp a young man with a stern face was turning over the leaves of one journal after another while near by was a bald-headed general absorbed in reading they passed quietly into a room which the prince called the hall of the wits and there they found three gentlemen talking politics a prince we are ready if you please said one of his partners finding him there and the prince joined them eleven sat down and listened to the three gentlemen but as he recalled all the conversations of the same kind he had heard since morning he felt excessively bored he got up and went off to find Turopsuin and oblonsky who were sure to be gay Turopsuin was with the champagne drinkers on the high divan in the billiard room and stepan arkadyevitch and vronsky were talking in a corner near the door not that she finds it tedious levin heard in passing but it's the uncertainty the indefiniteness of her position he was about to pass on discreetly but stepan arkadyevitch called him levin said he and levin saw that there were in his eyes not exactly tears but moisture as was always the case either after he had been drinking or when he was touched and just now it was both eleven don't go and he took him by the arm and detained him here is my sincere if not my best friend said he addressing vronsky you too are more like a kinsman and a friend to me i want to bring you together and see you friends you ought to be good friends because you are both good men 
there is nothing left for us but to give the kiss of friendship said vronsky gaily offering his hand to levin who pressed it cordially i'm very very glad said levin a waiter a bottle of champagne cried stepan arkadyevitch i am also very glad said vronsky but in spite of oblonsky's desires and their mutual satisfaction they had nothing to say and both knew it do you know he doesn't know anna remarked oblonsky and i want to introduce him to her come on levin is it possible said vronsky she will be very much pleased i should beg you to come at once but i am troubled about yashvin and i want to stay here till he has finished playing is he going to lose all he has i am the only one who has any influence over him said vronsky what do you say levin shall we have a game of pool first-rate said stepan arkadyevitch place the pyramid he said addressing the marker it is all ready replied the marker who had some time before put the balls in the triangular frame and had placed the red ball in readiness to break the pyramid well then go ahead after their game vronsky and levin sat down at gagin's table and levin at stepan arkadyevitch's instance began to bet on the aces vronsky sat down for a time at the same table where his acquaintances kept coming up and joining him then after a time he went to the infernal naya to find out how yashvin was getting along levin felt a pleasant sense of exhilaration after the intellectual weariness of the morning he was pleased to have his unfriendly feelings toward vronsky ended and the impression of restfulness good fellowship and comfort still remained by him when the game was ended stepan arkadyevitch took levin's arm saying well let us go see anna we needn't wait for vronsky what say you she is at home i promised her to bring you a long time ago where were you going this evening nowhere in particular i only told sviatsky i would go to the society of rural economy but i'll go with you if you wish excellent let's go then see if my carriage has come said stepan arkadyevitch addressing a lackey levin went to the desk paid the forty roubles which he had lost at cards in some mysterious way gave his fee to the old lackey who was standing by the door, and went through the long rooms down to the entrance. End of chapter 8 Part 7, Chapter 9 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Oblonsky's Carriage cried the Swiss, in a portentous voice. The carriage came up, and the two friends got in. Only as long as the carriage was still in the courtyard did Levin continue to experience the feeling of clubbish comfort, of satisfaction, and of indubitable decorum, which had surrounded him. But as soon as the carriage rolled out on the street, the jolting over the uneven pavement, the cries of an angry Isvostchek whom they met, and the sight of the red sign of a low public-house and some shops lighted up, caused this impression to fade away, and he began to think over what follies he had committed, and to ask himself if he were doing right in going to see Anna. What would Kitty say? Stepan Arkadyevitch, as if he had divined what was passing in the mind of his companion, cut short his meditations. "'How glad I am,' said he, "'that you are going to know her. Do you know Dolly has been wishing it for a long time? Lvov goes to her house, too. Though she is my sister,' continued Stepan Arkadyevitch, I am bold enough to say that she is a remarkable woman. You will see it. Her position is very hard, especially just now. 
why do you say especially now? We are negotiating with her husband for a divorce, and he is willing, but there are difficulties on account of the son, and this matter, which ought to have been settled long ago, is dragging on now these three months. As soon as the divorce is granted, she will marry Vronsky. How stupid it is, this old habit of dizziness, Isaiah rejoice, in which no one believes, and which destroys the happiness of people, exclaimed Stepan Arkadyevitch, interrupting what he was saying. Then he went on, and then her position will become as regular as yours or mine. Where does the difficulty lie? Ugh, it is a long and tiresome story. Everything is so undecided. But this is the point. She has been waiting three months for that divorce here in Moscow, where everybody knows her and him, and she doesn't see a single woman but Dolly, because, don't you see, she doesn't wish that anyone should come to see her from pity. What do you think? That fool of a Princess Vivara left her because she considered it irregular. Any other woman than Anna would not have found resources in herself. But you shall see how she lives, how dignified and calm she is. To the left, at the corner opposite the church, cried Oblonsky to the coachman, leaning out of the window. Phew! How hot it is! he added, throwing open his shuba, in spite of twelve degrees of cold. Well, she has a daughter, hasn't she, to take up her time and attention. You seem to imagine every woman to be only a setting hen, Unkovens, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. Why, yes, of course, she gives her time and attention to her daughter, but she doesn't make any fuss about it. She's occupied mainly with her writing. I see you smile ironically, but you are wrong. She has written a book for young people. She hasn't spoken of it to anyone, except me, and I showed the manuscript of Orkoyev, the publisher. You know, he is a writer himself, it seems. He is up in such matters." and he says that it is a remarkable thing. Do you think that she sets up for a blue stocking? Not at all. Anna is, above all things, a woman with a heart, as you will see. She has in her house a little English girl, and a whole family, and is looking after them. What? Some philanthropical scheme? Here you are immediately trying to turn it into something absurd. It is not for philanthropy's sake, but because she loves to do it. They had— that is, Vronsky had, an English trainer, a master in his calling, but a drunkard. He did nothing but drink, delirium tremens, and abandoned his family. Anna saw them, helped them, got drawn in more and more, and now has the whole family on her hands. I don't mean merely by giving them money. She herself teaches the boys Russian, so as to fit them for the gymnasium, and she has taken the little girl home with her. Well, you shall see her." At this moment the carriage entered a courtyard. Stefan Arkadyevitch rang at the door before which they stopped, and, without inquiring whether the mistress of the house was at home, went into the vestibule. Levin followed him, more and more uneasy as to the propriety of the step he was taking. He saw, as he looked at himself in the glass, that he was very red in the face, but he knew that this was not tipsy. He went upon the carpeted stairs after Oblonsky, on the second floor a servant received them with a bow, and Stefan Arkadyevitch, as if he were a connection, asked him, "'Who is with Anna Arkadyevna?' and received the answer, "'Mr. Vorkoyev.' "'Where are they?' "'In the library.' They passed through a small, wainscoted dining-room, and walking along on the thick carpet they came to the library, dimly lighted by a single lamp with a huge shade. 
A reflector lamp on the wall threw its full rays on a full-length portrait of a woman, which instantly attracted Levin's attention. While Stepan Arkadyevitch went on, and the man's voice, which had been heard, ceased speaking, Levin stood looking at the portrait which shone down from its frame, and he could not tear himself away. He forgot where he was, and, not hearing what was said, he kept his eyes fixed on the wonderful portrait. It was not a painting, but a living, beautiful woman, with her dark, curling hair, bare shoulders and arms, and a pensive, half-smile on her lovely lips, and gazing at him triumphantly, and yet tenderly, from her entrancing eyes. Only because it was not alive did it not seem more beautiful than life itself. Ya Reda, I am very glad, a voice said suddenly behind him, evidently addressed to him, the voice of the same woman whom he admired in the picture. It was Anna, who had been concealed by a lattice-work of climbing plants, and who rose to receive her visitor. And in the dark of the library Levin recognized the original of the portrait, in a simple dark blue gown, not in the same position, not with the same expression, but with the same lofty beauty which had been represented by the artist in the painting. She was less brilliant in the reality, but the living woman had a new attraction which the portrait lacked. End of chapter 9 Part 7, Chapter 10 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. She advanced to meet him, and did not conceal the pleasure which his visit caused her. With the ease and simplicity which Levin recognized as characteristic of a woman of the best society, she extended to him a small, energetic hand, introduced him to Vorkoyev, and called his attention to a light-complexioned and pretty little girl, her pupil, she said, who was seated with her work near the table. "'I am very, very glad,' she repeated, and in these simple words, spoken by her, Levin found an extraordinary significance. "'I have known you and liked you for ever so long, both because of your friendship with Stiva and because of your wife. I knew her a very short time, but she gave me the impression of a flower, a lovely flower.' and to think, she will soon be a mother. She talked freely and without haste, occasionally looking from Levin to her brother, and Levin was conscious that the impression which he had produced was excellent, and he immediately felt perfectly at his ease with her, and on the simplest and most friendly terms, as if he had known her from childhood. To Oblonsky, who asked if smoking was allowed, she replied, That is why we have taken refuge in Alexey's study, and, looking at Levin, Instead of asking, Do you smoke? she held over a tortoise shell cigar case to him and took a cigarette herself. How are you today? asked her brother. Pretty well, a little nervous, as usual. Isn't it extraordinarily good? said Stefan Arkadyevitch, noticing Levin's admiration of the portrait. I never saw a better portrait. An extraordinary likeness, isn't it? added Vorkoyev. Levin looked from the portrait to the original. Anna's face lighted up with a peculiar glow as she felt conscious of his eyes resting on her. He blushed, and, to conceal his confusion, was just going to ask her when she had seen Darya Alexandrovna. But at that instant Anna said, "'Ivan Petrovitch and I were talking just now of Vestchenkov's pictures. Do you know them?' "'Yes, I have seen them,' answered Levin. "'But I beg your pardon. You were just going to ask me something?' 
Levin asked whether she had seen Dolly lately. She was here yesterday. She was indignant at what happened to Grisha at the gymnasium. It seems his Latin teacher was unfair to him. Yes, I saw the pictures. They pleased me very much, said Levin, returning to the topic which they had begun to talk about. What Levin now said was entirely free from the technical formality with which he had talked in the morning. Every word of the conversation with her seemed to be significant, and pleasant as it was to talk with her, it was still pleasanter to listen to her. Anna talked not only naturally and intelligently, but, though intelligently, still without pretense, not arrogating any great importance to her own thoughts, but attributing great importance to what her friends said. The conversation turned on the new tendencies of art, and on some of the illustrations to the Bible which a French artist had recently made. Vorkoyev severely criticized the realism which the artist carried to brutality. Levin remarked that the French had carried conventionality in art to greater lengths than any other people, and that, therefore, they found a special merit in the reaction toward realism. They discovered poetry in the fact that they no longer lied. Never had Levin said a clever thing which gave him anything like the pleasure that this did. Anna's face grew suddenly bright, as the full force of his remark dawned on her. She laughed. "'I am delighted,' she said, "'just as you are when you see a very lifelike portrait. What you said is characteristic of all French art at the present time, painting, and even literature, Zola, Daudet, but possibly this is always the way that men form their conceptions from imagery, conventional figures, but afterwards, all the combinations made, the imaginary figures weary, and people begin to invent more natural and truthful figures. "'That is perfectly true,' said Vorkoyev. "'Have you been to the club?' asked Anna, turning to her brother. "'Yes.' "'Yes. Here is a genuine woman,' said Levin to himself, forgetting himself, and gazing steadily into her handsome, mobile face, which now suddenly changed its expression. Levin did not hear what she was talking about as she bent over toward her brother, but he was struck by the change in her expression. Beautiful as it had been before in repose, it now suddenly assumed a mixed expression of curiosity, wrath, and pride. But this lasted only for one minute. She half closed her eyes, as if she were trying to remember something. However, this is interesting to no one, said she, and she addressed the English girl in English. Please order the tea in the drawing-room. The girl rose and went out. "'Well, has she passed the examination?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Perfectly. She is a very capable girl, and a lovely character.' "'You will end by loving her better than your own daughter.' "'That is just like a man. In love there is no such a thing as more or less. I love my daughter in one way, and this girl in another.' "'I tell Anna Arkadyevna,' said Vorkoyev, that if she would spend a hundredth part of the activity she devotes to this little English girl for the benefit of Russian children, what a service her energy would render. She would accomplish prodigies. Now there, what you want I can't do. Count Alexey Kirillovitch—she glanced with an air of timid inquiry at Levin, as she pronounced this name, and he involuntarily responded by a look which was encouraging and full of admiration— he used to encourage me, when we were in the country, to visit the schools. I went a few times. They were very pleasant, but I couldn't get interested in this occupation. You talk of energy, but the foundation of energy is love, 
and love does not come at will. So I love this little English girl, but I really don't know why. She looked at Levin again, and her smile and her look all told him that she spoke only with the aim of gaining his approval, though sure in advance that they understood each other. I agree with you thoroughly, cried he. You can't put your heart into schools and such things, and I think that from the same reason philanthropic institutions generally give such small results. She was silent for a moment, then she smiled. Yes, yes, she replied. I never could. Je ne pas le coeur assise large to love a whole asylum of wretched little girls. Calais ne m'a jamais reçu. Women do it only to win for themselves position sociale. Even now, when I have so much need of occupation, she added, with a sad, confiding expression, addressing Levin, though she was speaking to her brother, even now I cannot. Then suddenly frowning, and Levin saw that she frowned because she had begun to speak of herself, she changed the subject. I know about you, she said, smiling at Levin. You have the reputation of being only an indifferent citizen, but I have always defended you as well as I could. How have you defended me? That depends on the attacks. But suppose we have some tea, said she. She rose and took a Morocco-bound book which was lying on the table. Give it to me, Anna Arkadyevna, said Vorkoyev, pointing to the book. It is well worth while. No, it is all so unfinished. I have told him about it, remarked Stefan Arkadyevitch, indicating Levin. You were wrong. My writings are like those little baskets and carvings made by prisoners, which Liza Meyertsalova used to sell. She managed the prisons for our society, said she, turning to Levin. Those unfortunates used to do perfect miracles of patience. Levin was struck by still a new feature in this remarkable, fascinating woman. Besides wit, grace, beauty, she had sincerity. She did not wish to conceal the thorns of her situation. As she said that, she sighed, and her face suddenly assumed a stern expression, as if it were changed to stone. With this expression on her face, she was even more beautiful than before. But that expression was new. It was entirely alien to that which a few minutes before had seemed to irradiate happiness, and which the artist had managed to reproduce in the portrait. Levin looked once more at the portrait, and at the original of it, while Anna took her brother's arm, and a feeling of tenderness and pity came over him, surprising even himself. She let the two gentlemen pass into the parlour, and remained behind to speak to Steva. "'What is she talking with him about? The divorce? Vronsky? What he was doing at the club? About me?' thought Levin, and he was so stirred that he heard nothing that Vorkoyev was saying to him about the merits of the story for children which Anna Arkadyevna had written. During tea, a pleasant conversation full of ideas was carried on. There seemed to be no lack of subjects at any moment, but it was felt that there was time to say all that any one wanted to say, and each was willing to listen when the other talked. And all that was said, not only by Anna herself, but by Vorkoyev and by Stefan Arkadyevitch, had a special significance, thanks to her interested attention and her pertinent remarks. So, at least, it seemed to Levin. All the time they were talking, Levin studied her, and admired her beauty and the cultivation of her mind, and not less her perfect simplicity and naturalness. He listened and talked, and all the time thought about her and her inner life, and tried to penetrate her feelings, and he, 
who had formerly criticized her so severely, now by some strange train of thought, justified her and pitied her, and confessed to himself the fear that Ronsky did not wholly understand her. It was more than eleven o'clock when Stepan Arkadyevitch rose to go. Rokoyev had already left some time before. Levin rose, too, but with regret. He felt as if he had only just come. Prasciati, farewell, said Anna to him, holding his hand in hers, and looking into his eyes with a fascinating look. I am glad, que la glance est rompue. She let go his hand, and her eyes twinkled. Tell your wife that I love her, as I have always done, and, if she cannot forgive me my position, tell her how I hope she may never pardon me, for to pardon it is necessary to understand what I have suffered, and God preserve her from that. Yes, I will surely tell her, answered Levin, and the color came into his face. End of chapter 10「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel "'What a wonderful, lovely, and pitiable woman,' thought Levin, as he went out with Stefan Arkadyevitch into the cold night air. "'There! What did I tell you?' demanded Oblonsky, as he saw that Levin was perfectly overcome. "'Wasn't I right?' "'Yes.' answered Levin thoughtfully. An extraordinary woman. Not only intellectual, but she has a wonderfully warm heart. What a terrible pity it is about her. Now, thank God, all will soon be arranged, I hope. Well, after this, don't form hasty judgments, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, opening his carriage door. Prochai, farewell. We go different ways. Levin went home, never ceasing to think about Anna recalling the smallest incidents of the evening, bringing back all the charm of her face, and understanding her situation better and better, and, at the same time, feeling the deepest commiseration for her. When he reached his house, Kuzma told Levin that Katerina Alexandrovna was well, and that her sisters had but just left her. He handed him at the same time two letters. Levin, as he stood in the vestibule, ran through them at once so as not to be distracted afterward. One was from his superintendent, Sokolov. Sokolov wrote that he had not found a purchaser who would give more than five and a half roubles for the wheat, and that he could not raise money elsewhere. The other letter was from his sister. She reproached him because her affairs were not yet regulated. "'Well, we'll sell for five roubles and a half, if they won't give more,' thought he, settling with extraordinary promptness the first question which had been troubling him. It is wonderful how the time here is occupied, he said to himself, thinking of the second letter. He felt that he was to blame toward his sister, because he had not yet accomplished what she had asked him to do for her. Today I did not get to court either, but I did not have a moment's time. And, making up his mind that he would surely go the next day, he went to his wife's room. On his way he cast a quick glance back at his day. There had been nothing except conversations, conversations in which he had listened, and in which he had taken part. Not one of the subjects touched on what would have occupied him when in the country, but here they were very interesting, and all the conversations in which he had engaged were good, only in two places were they not absolutely good. One was his remark about the fish at the club, the other was something intangibly wrong in his feelings of tender pity for Anna. 
Levin found his wife sad and absent-minded. The dinner of the three sisters had been merry, but afterward they had waited and waited for him, and the evening had seemed long to them, and now Kitty was alone. "'Well, what have you been doing?' she asked him, looking at him, as she did so, with a suspicious light in her eyes. But she took good care to conceal her intentions, so as not to prevent him from telling her the whole story, and with an encouraging smile she listened as he told her how he had spent the evening. "'Well, I met Vronsky at the club, and I am very glad of it. I felt very much at my ease with him, and enjoyed it. Of course, I shall try to avoid him, but still henceforth I shan't feel that awkwardness in his society.' As he said these words, he remembered that in order not to avoid him, he had immediately gone to Anna's house, and his face grew red. Here we say the peasantry drink, but I don't know which drink more, the peasantry or men in society. The peasantry drink on festival days, but— Kitty was not interested in the question of how much the peasantry drink. She saw her husband's face glow red, and she wanted to know the reason. Well, where else did you go? Steva insisted on my going with him to Anna Arkadyevna's, answered he, blushing more and more, and his doubts as to the propriety of his visit to Anna were decided for him. He now knew that he ought not to have done so. Kitty's eyes opened wide and flashed at the mention of Anna, but she restrained herself, and, concealing her emotion, she misled him. She merely said, Ah! You are not going to be vexed with me because I went? Steva begged me to go, and Dolly wanted me to. Oh, no, said she, but in her eyes he saw a look which boded little good. She is a very charming woman, who is very much to be pitied, a good woman, continued Levin, and he described the life which Anna led, and gave her message of remembrance to Kitty. Yes, of course she is to be pitied, said Kitty, when he had finished. Whom did you get a letter from? He told her, and, misled by her apparent calmness, went to undress. When he came back he found Kitty in the same armchair. When he approached, she looked at him and burst into tears. "'What is it? What's the matter?' he asked with some annoyance, for he understood the cause of her tears. "'You are in love with that horrid woman. She's bewitched you. I saw it in your eyes. Yes. Yes! What will be the end of it? You were at the club. You drank too much. You gambled, and then you went. Where? No, this shall not go on. We must leave. I'm going home to-morrow. It was long before Levin could pacify his wife, and when at last he succeeded, it was only by acknowledging that his feeling of pity for Anna, together with the wine, had clouded his brain, and that he had fallen under her seductive influence, and by promising that he would avoid her. What he acknowledged with more sincerity was the ill effect produced on him by this idle life in Moscow, passed in eating, drinking, and gossiping. They talked till three o'clock in the morning. Only when it was three o'clock were they sufficiently reconciled to go to sleep. End of chapter 11《This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. After having said good-bye to her visitors, without sitting down, Anna began to walk up and down the full length of her apartments. 
Of late she had got into the habit of unconsciously doing all she could to attract young men to her, and so this whole evening she had striven to awaken a feeling of love in Levin. But though she knew that she had succeeded in doing this as far as it was possible with a chaste married man, and though he pleased her very much, and in spite of the sharply defined dissimilarities between Vronsky and Levin, she as a woman was able to detect the subtle likeness between them, which had caused Kitty to be in love with them both. Yet as soon as he had left the room, she ceased to think about him. One thought, and one only, in various guises, followed her. Why, since I have so evidently an attraction for others, for this married man who is in love with his wife, why is he so cold to me? Yet not exactly cold. He loves me, I know. But lately something new has come between us. Why has he spent the whole evening away? He told Steva that he could not leave Yashvin, but had to watch him while he played. Is Yashvin a baby? It must be true. He never tells lies. But there is something else back of it. He is glad of the chance to show me that he has other duties. I know this. I don't object to it. But what need has he to assert it so? He wants to show that his love for me must not interfere with his independence. But the proof is not necessary. I must have his love. He ought to understand the wretchedness of the life I lead here in Moscow. Why am I living? I am not living, only dragging out life, in hope of a turn in affairs, which never, never comes. And Steva says that he can't go to Alexey Alexandrovitch. And I can't write again. I cannot do anything. I can't begin anything. Or make any changes, but only control myself wait, and invent amusements. This English family, my reading, my writing. But it is all only to deceive myself, like this morphine. He ought to be sorry for me, she said, feeling how the tears of pity at her own lot filled her eyes. She heard the doorbell Vronsky rang violently, and instantly she wiped away her tears, not only wiped away the tears, but sat down near the lamp with a book, and pretended to be calm. She felt that she must show her dissatisfaction because he had not returned as he had promised, but not to let her grief be seen. She might pity herself, but Vronsky must not be allowed to pity her. She did not want a contest. She blamed him because he wanted to quarrel, but she herself involuntarily took the attitude of an opponent. "'Well, you weren't lonely, were you?' said he, briskly and cheerfully, as he came toward her. "'What a terrible passion gambling is!' "'No,' I was not lonely. I long ago learned not to be lonely. Steva and Levin have been here to see me. Yes, I knew that they intended to come. Well, and how do you like Levin? he asked, as he sat down near her. Very much. They have only just gone. How about Yashvin? He had won seventeen thousand roubles. I got him away, but he escaped from me and went back again, and now he's losing. But why did you abandon him? said Anna, suddenly raising her eyes to his. The expression of her face was cold and unpleasant. You told Steva that you were going to stay, to bring him away, and now you abandon him? In the first place, I did not send any message to you. In the second place, I never tell lies, and chiefly I wished to stay, and I stayed, he answered angrily. Anna, why, why do you do so? 
added he, after a moment's silence, holding out his hand to her in the hope that she would place hers in it. She was glad of this appeal to her love, but some strange spirit of evil prevented her from yielding. "'Of course you stayed because you wanted to. You always do as you please. But why tell me so? What is the good?' answered she, growing more and more heated. "'Who denies that you tell the truth? You wish to justify yourself. Do so, then.' Vronsky drew back his hand, and his face became more set than before. "'For you, this is a matter of obstinacy,' she cried, looking at him fixedly, and suddenly finding the term by which to call the expression of his face, which exasperated her. "'Sheer obstinacy!' For you, the question is to see whether you will win the victory over me. But the question for me— And again the sense of her pitiable lot came over her, and she almost sobbed. If you knew what it meant for me when I feel, as I do now, that you hate me. Yes, hate me. If you knew what it meant for me. If you knew how near I am to horrible misfortune at these moments. How I fear— how I fear for myself! And she turned away to hide her sobs. But what's all this for? said Vronsky, alarmed at this despair, and leaning toward Anna to take her hand and kiss it. Do I seek outside diversion? Don't I avoid the society of women? As if that were all, said she. Well, tell me what I must do to make you content. I am ready to do anything that you may be happy said he, moved to see her in such despair. "'What would I not do to spare you such grief, Anna?' he said. "'It's nothing, nothing,' she replied. "'I myself don't know. It's the loneliness. It's my nerves. There, let's not talk about it any more. Tell me what happened at the races. Why haven't you told me about it?' she asked, attempting to conceal the pride she felt at her victory for she knew it rested with her. Vronsky asked for some supper, and, as he was eating, described to her the incidents of the races. But from the sound of his voice, and from his glance that grew colder and colder, she saw that he would not forgive her for the victory, that the sense of obstinacy which she had struggled to overcome was as firm in him as ever. He was colder toward her than before, as if he regretted having yielded to her, and as she remembered the words that won her the victory, especially the words, How near I am to horrible misfortune, and I fear for myself, she realized that it was a dangerous weapon, and that she must never employ it again. But she felt that along with the love which united them, there stood between them an evil spirit of conflict, which she had not the power to drive from his heart, and still less from her own. End of chapter 12 Part Seven, Chapter Thirteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. There are no imaginable conditions to which a man cannot accustom himself, especially if he sees that all those who surround him are living in the same way. Three months before, Levin would not have believed that he could have slept tranquilly under the conditions in which he found himself at the present time that living an aimless, unprofitable life, spending more than his income, getting tipsy, for he could not call his experience at the club anything else, 
his absurd intimacy with a man with whom his wife had once been in love, and his still more absurd visit to a woman whom it was impossible to regard as respectable, and after the fascination which she had exerted over him and the mortification which he had caused his wife, that under all these conditions he could sleep serenely. But under the influence of his weariness, the long hours without a nap, and the wine which he had drunk, he slept soundly and serenely. At five o'clock the noise of an opening door wakened him. He sat up and looked around. Kitty was not in bed next to him, but behind the screen there was a light moving, and he heard her steps. "'What's the matter?' he asked, still only half awake. "'Kitty, what is it?' "'Nothing,' answered she, coming from behind the screen with a candle in her hand, and smiling at him with a peculiarly sweet and significant smile. "'I don't feel quite well.' "'What? Is this the beginning? Must we send?' he exclaimed in alarm, and he began to dress as quickly as possible. "'No, no,' said she, smiling and holding his hand. "'It's nothing. I did not feel quite well. It's all right now.' Going back to bed, she put out the light and lay down again, keeping perfectly still, although her very stillness and the way she, as it were, held her breath, were suspicious and still more so the expression of peculiar tenderness and alertness with which, as she came out from behind the screen, she said to him, "'It's nothing.' Still, he was so overcome by drowsiness that he immediately went to sleep again. It was only afterward that he realized the calmness of her spirit, and appreciated all that was passing in her dear, gentle heart, as she lay thus motionless near him, awaiting the most solemn moment of a woman's life." About seven o'clock he was awakened by her hand touching his shoulder, and her low whisper. She apparently hesitated between the fear of waking him and the wish to speak to him. "'Kostya, don't be afraid. It's nothing. But I think—Lizaveta Petrovna had better be called.' The candle was again lighted. She was sitting on the bed, holding the knitting on which she had been at work during the last few days. "'Please don't be alarmed.' "'I'm not in the least afraid,' said she, seeing her husband's terrified face, and she pressed his hand to her breast, then to her lips. Levin leapt from the bed and, unconscious of himself, without taking his eyes off his wife for a moment, hurried on his dressing-gown. It was necessary for him to go, but he could not tear himself away. Dearly as he loved her face, as well as he knew her expression, her eyes, yet never before had he seen her look as she did then. How ugly and horrible did he now seem, as he saw her now, and remembered the mortification which he had caused her the evening before. Her flushed face, with the clustering soft curls escaping from under her nightcap, was radiant with joy and resolution. Natural and simple as Kitty's character in general was, Levin was amazed by what unfolded itself before him now, when suddenly all the curtains were withdrawn, and the very essence of her soul shone in her eyes and in this simplicity and revelation, she, her very self, whom he loved, was more apparent than ever. She looked at him and smiled, but suddenly her brows contracted. She lifted her head and, coming to him, took his hand and clung to him, sighing painfully. She suffered, and yet she seemed to pity him for her sufferings. At first, as he saw this silent suffering, it seemed to him that he was to blame for it, but in her look there was tenderness which told him that she not only did not blame him, 
but that she loved him all the more for her suffering. If not I, who, then, is to blame for this? he asked himself. She suffered, and she seemed to take pride in her pain, and to rejoice in it. He saw that in her soul some beautiful transformation was taking place. But what? He could not understand. It was above his comprehension. I have sent for Mamma. Now go quickly, and get Lizaveta Petrovna. Kostya, it's nothing. It's all over. She went to the other side of the room and rang the bell. There, now, please go. Pasha is coming. I want nothing. And Levin, with astonishment, saw her take up her work again. As he went out of one door, he heard Pasha, the maid, come in at the other. He paused on the threshold and listened as Kitty gave directions for arranging the room, and as she herself began to move the bed. He dressed, and when he had ordered his carriage, since it was too early for Izvazchik's, he flew up to her room again, not on tiptoes, but on wings, as it seemed to him. Two maids were busily engaged in moving something in the room. Kitty was walking up and down, knitting swiftly, slipping the knots, and giving directions. "'I'm going for the doctor immediately. Lizaveta Petrovna has been sent for, but I will call there. There is nothing more, is there?' "'Oh, yes. Dolly.' She looked at him, evidently without hearing what he said. "'Yes. Yes, go,' said she, and motioned to him with her hand. He was just passing through the drawing-room when he heard a groan, pitiful but instantly suppressed. He stood still, and could not make up his mind. "'It is she,' he said to himself, and, putting his hands to his head, he rushed out. "'Lord, have mercy on us. Pardon us. Save us!' he exclaimed, and these words, which suddenly and unexpectedly came to his lips, were not spoken merely by his lips, unbeliever though he was. Now at this instant he knew perfectly well that all his doubts and the impossibility which his reason found in belief had not the slightest influence to prevent him from addressing himself to God. Everything of this sort now vanished like dust from his soul. To whom could he address himself, if not to him, in whose hands he felt were held himself, and his soul, and his love? The horse was not yet ready, but, feeling the special strain of physical powers unemployed, and of the work before him calling for his attention, he started on foot, so as not to lose a single instant, and ordered Kuzma to follow him. At the corner of the street he met a knight Izvazchik hurrying along. In the little sledge sat Lizaveta Petrovna, in velvet cloak, with her head wrapped up in a kerchief. "'Thank God!' he murmured, as he saw with joy her pale little face, which had a peculiarly serious, and even stern, expression. Not ordering the driver to stop, he ran along with it back to the house. "'Only two hours, not more,' asked Zvieta Petrovna. "'You may speak to Pyotr Dmitrich, but don't hurry him. Yes, please get some opium at the apothecaries.' "'Do you think all will go on well?' asked he. "'God help us,' he added, as he saw his horse starting from the door. He got into the sledge alongside of Kuzma, and ordered him to hurry to the doctor's. End of chapter 13 Part 7, Chapter 14 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel
The doctor was not yet up, and a servant, who was busy cleaning the lamps, announced that his master had gone to bed late, and had given orders not to be waked, but would be up before long. The lackey was polishing lamp chimneys, and seemed very much absorbed in this occupation. At first this absorption of the lackey in his lamp chimneys, and his indifference to what was going on at home, made Levin indignant. But on reflection he realized that no one knew anything about it, or was obliged to share in his feelings, and that consequently it was incumbent on him to be calm, reasonable, and firm, so as to break down that wall of indifference, and attain his end. "'I must not spoil matters by haste,' said Levin to himself, feeling all the time a growing intensity of physical energy and concentration on what was before him. Now that he knew that the doctor was not up, and had given orders not to be disturbed, Levin thought over several plans which presented themselves to him, and finally decided on the following, to send Kuzma with a note to another doctor, to go himself to the apothecaries for the laudanum, and, if on his return the doctor was not up, then either by bribery or by main force, if the man would not consent, to waken the doctor at any cost. At the apothecaries, the lean clerk, with the same indifference as the lackey cleaning the lamp chimneys had shown, put a seal on the powders for the waiting coachman, and refused to deliver the opium. Striving not to get impatient or angry, and mentioning the doctor and the midwife by name, and telling what it was needed for, Levin pleaded with him. The clerk asked his employer in German if it should be permitted, and, receiving a favorable reply from behind the screen, he proceeded to get out the bottle and a funnel, and slowly poured the liquid from it into a smaller vial, pasted on a label, sealed it, and, in spite of Levin's urgency not to do so, was even going to wrap it up. This Levin could not endure. He resolutely snatched the vial out of the clerk's hands, and rushed through the great glass doors. The doctor was still asleep, and, this time, the servant was shaking the rugs. Levin, leisurely getting from his pocket a ten-rouble note, and dwelling on his words, but not wasting time, gave him the money, and explained that Pyotr Dmitrievich, how great and significant now seemed this hitherto unimportant Pyotr Dmitrievich, had promised him to be on hand at any time, so that he would certainly not be angry, and that, therefore, he must instantly awaken him. The lackey consented, and went upstairs, and showed Levin into the reception-room. Levin could hear in the next room how the doctor coughed, walked about, washed his face and hands, and made some remarks. Three minutes passed. It seemed to Levin that it was more than an hour. He could no longer contain himself. "'Pyotr Dmitrievich!' "'Pyotr Dmitrievich!' he cried through the opened door, in a beseeching voice. "'For God's sake, forgive me. Let me come in just as you are. It's been more than two hours now.' "'I'll be out immediately,' replied a voice, and Levin, to his surprise, knew by the sound of the doctor's voice that he was smiling as he spoke. "'Just for one little minute. I'll be out immediately.' Two minutes more went by, while the doctor was putting on his boots, and another two minutes while he was brushing his hair and putting on his coat. "'Pyotr Dmitrievich,' Levin was saying, once more, but at that instant the doctor came in, already dressed and with his hair brushed. These people have no hearts, thought Levin. He can brush his hair while we are dying. Good morning, said the doctor, entering the reception room serenely, and offering to shake hands. I don't feel anxious. Well, how is it? 
Levin began at once a long and circumstantial account, filled with a crowd of useless details, and interrupted himself at every moment to urge the doctor to set out. Yes, but you must not be anxious. You see, you don't know. I'm really not in need yet. Still, I have promised, and I assure you I'll go. But there's no hurry. Please sit down. Won't you have some coffee? Levin looked at him with a questioning look, asking with his eyes if he were not laughing at him, but the doctor was in serious earnest. I know, I know, added the physician, smiling. I myself am a family man, and we husbands cut a sorry figure in such cases. The husband of one of my patients always, on such occasion, goes off to the stable. But do you think, Pyotr Dmitrievich, do you think she'll get on well? All the indications point to a fortunate issue. Won't you come at once? said Levin, looking with angry eyes at the servant who was bringing in the coffee. Within an hour. For God's sake! Well, let me take my coffee. The doctor proceeded to take his breakfast. Both were silent. It seems the Turks are beating. Did you read the telegram last evening? asked the doctor, biting into a roll. No, but I'm going, said Levin. Will you come in a quarter of an hour? Make it a half. On your honor. When Levin got home, he found the princess at the door, and they went to Kitty's room together. The princess had tears in her eyes, and her hands trembled. When she saw Levin, she threw her arms round him and kissed him. How is it, Lizaveta Petrovna, dearie, said she, seizing the midwife's hand as she came to meet them with a radiant but solicitous face. It is going well, said she. It would be well for her to lie down. Try to persuade her. She would find it easier. Ever since Levin, on waking, had understood the situation, he had made up his mind, without indulging in anxious thought or forebodings, crushing down all his anxieties and feelings, firmly, without worrying his wife, but, on the contrary, calming her and sustaining her courage, that he would endure what was before him. Not allowing himself even to think of what was coming or how it might end, judging by answers to his questions, how long it generally lasted, Levin, in his imagination, prepared to have patience and hold his heart in his hands for five hours, and this seemed to him within the limit of possibility. But when he returned after his visit to the doctors, and found Kitty still suffering, again he cried more and more frequently, "'Lord, forgive us, and be merciful!' and he was afraid that he could not endure it, so terrible was it to him. Thus an hour went by. And after this another hour passed, and a second, and a third, and the five which he had set as the very ultimate limit of his endurance, and the situation was still the same, and still he was enduring the suspense, because there was nothing else to do except endure. Thinking every moment that he had reached the last limit, and that his heart would burst with his agony, but the minutes still went by, hours and hours, and his feelings of agony and horror kept growing worse and more unendurable. All the ordinary conditions of life, without which it is impossible to take cognizance of anything, ceased to exist for Levin. He lost all consciousness of time. Now the minutes when she called him to her, and he held her moist hand, which at one time would press his with extraordinary force, and again push him away seemed hours. Then again the hours would seem to him minutes. He was surprised when Lizaveta Petrovna asked for a light, and he learned that it was five o'clock in the evening. 
if they had told him that it was only ten o'clock in the morning, he would have been just as much surprised. Where the time had gone, what he had done, where he had been, he could not have told. Sometimes he saw Kitty's flushed face, now troubled and piteous, then calm and almost smiling, as she tried to reassure him. Then he saw the princess, flushed with anxiety, her gray curls in disorder, swallowing down her tears and biting her lips to keep from crying. He had also seen Dolly, and the doctor smoking great cigarettes, and the Zvieta Petrovna, with a calm, serious, but reassuring look, and the old prince, pacing the dining-room with a frowning face. But how they came and went, and where they had been, he could not tell. The princess had been with the doctor in Kitty's room, then in the library, where a well-set table had appeared, then she disappeared, and Dolly was in her place. Then Levin remembered that they sent him somewhere. He moved a divan and a table zealously, thinking it was for her sake, and only when it was done did he learn that they were preparing his own bed for the night. He was sent to the library to ask the doctor something. The doctor replied, and then began to speak of the disorders of the Duma, or town council. Then they sent him to the princess's bedchamber, to get a holy image made of silver, with a gold trimming, from there, and, with the aid of an old chambermaid of the princess's, he climbed up to get it from the cabinet, and, in doing so, broke a little lamp, and the old woman consoled him for this accident, and encouraged him about his wife. And he had carried the image to Kitty, and placed it at her head, carefully arranging it behind her pillow. But where, when, and why all this was done, was more than he could tell. Neither did he comprehend why the old princess took him by the hand, and, looking at him compassionately, begged him to calm himself, or why Dolly tried to persuade him to eat something, and led him from the room, or why even the doctor looked at him gravely and sympathetically, and offered him a pill. He knew and felt conscious only that what was occurring was like that which had occurred the year before at the hotel of the government city, by the deathbed of his brother Nikolai. That was grief, this was happiness. But that grief and this happiness were in the same way outside of the ordinary conditions of life, were in this peculiar life, as it were, the loopholes through which appeared something higher, and in exactly the same way, while the hard, painful event was accomplishing before him, in exactly the same way incomprehensible, his soul, at the contemplation of this loftiness, raised itself to a height which he had never before dreamed possible, and whither his reason could not follow. "'Lord, have mercy and aid us,' he kept repeating, in spite of his long lack of practice, and yet feeling that he was addressing God with the same simplicity, the same confidence, as in his childhood and early youth. All this time he seemed to be leading two separate existences. One was away from Kitty, with the doctor smoking one fat cigarette after another, and knocking the ashes off against the rim of the unemptied ash-tray, or with Dolly and the old princess, who insisted on talking about dinner, a politics, or the illness of Maria Petrovna, and with whom Levin suddenly, for an instant, would forget entirely what was taking place, and feel wide awake. And the other was in her presence, by her bedside, where his heart felt as if it would burst, and it almost did break with compassion, and where he did not cease to pray to God. And every time, when he would be aroused from momentary oblivion by a cry coming from her chamber, he would fall under the same strange delusion as had at the first moment taken possession of him. 
Every time he heard the cry, he would spring to his feet, hasten to her room, and on the way remember that he was not to blame, and would long to protect and help. And as he looked on her, he would see that there was no help to be given her, and again the pity would seize him, and he would pray, Lord, forgive and help us. And in proportion as the time passed by, the stronger became the two conditions of mind. He would be calmer at one moment, perfectly oblivious of her, while remaining out of her presence, and then again the more painful would become his sympathetic torments and the feeling of helplessness before them. He would spring to his feet, feel the impulse to escape somewhere, and hasten to her. Sometimes when she would keep calling for him he would reproach her, but, seeing her submissive, smiling face, and hearing her words, I have tired you out, he would reproach God. But, remembering what God was, he would beg for pardon and aid. End of chapter 14「Seven, Chapter Fifteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This Slippervox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. He did not know whether it was late or early. The candles had already burned down. Dolly had just come into the library and was proposing to the doctor to lie down. Levin had been sitting there listening to the doctor's story of the charlatanry of magnetizers and looking at the ash at the end of his cigarette. It was one of the moments of rest, and he was oblivious. He had entirely forgotten what was taking place. He listened to the doctor, and followed him understandingly. Suddenly he heard a cry unlike anything he had ever heard. The cry was so terrible that Levin did not even stir, but, holding his breath, he looked at the doctor with eyes full of questioning terror. The doctor bent his head, as if to hear better, and smiled with an air of approbation. Levin had reached the point where nothing could surprise him, and he said inwardly, "'Evidently that must be so. But why that cry?' He went back to the sick-room on tiptoe, passed round by Lizaveta Petrovna and the princess, and stood in his place by the bedside. The cry had ceased, but evidently there was some change. What he did not know, and did not care to know. But he saw it by the grave expression of Lizaveta Petrovna's pale face." Her face was stern and pale, and just as resolute as ever, although her lower jaw trembled a little. Her eyes were kept steadily fixed on Kitty. Her flushed, tortured face, with the little tufts of hair clinging to it, was turned toward him, and her eyes sought his. She raised her hand and tried to take his. When once she got hold of it, she tried with her moist hands to press it to her forehead. "'Don't go. Don't go.' "'I'm not afraid,' said she quickly. "Mamma, take away my earrings. They annoy me. "'You aren't afraid?' "'Lizaveta Petrovna, quick, quick!' she spoke rapidly, and tried to smile. But suddenly her face grew convulsed, and she pushed him away. "'This is terrible. I shall die. I shall die. Go. Go!' Then came the same unearthly cry. Levin seized his head in his hands and rushed from the room. "'That is nothing. All is going well,' said Dolly, following after him. But, whatever they might say, he knew that now all was lost. Leaning his head against the lintel, he stood in the adjoining room, and listened to screams and moaning, such sounds as he had never heard before, 
and he knew that what was making such animal-like noise was she who had once been Kitty. He had long ceased to care about the child. He now hated that child. He went so far as to not wish for Kitty to live, provided only her horrible agonies might be ended. Doctor, what does that mean? My God, he said, seizing the doctor's arm as he went in. It is the end, replied the doctor, and his face was so serious, as he said this, that Levin thought he meant that Kitty was dead. Not knowing what would become of him, he went back to the bedroom. What he first saw was Lizaveta Petrovna's face. It was even more than before pretentious and stern. It was no longer Kitty's face that was there. In the place where it had been before, there was something terrible, both by reason of the agony which contracted it, and by reason of the sound that came from it. He bowed his head against the wooden frame of the bed, feeling that his heart would burst. The awful shriek still continued. It grew more piercing than ever, as if the last limit of horror had been reached. Then suddenly the shriek ceased. He could not believe it, but he could not doubt. And he heard a gentle rustling and a quick breathing, and his wife's living, loving, happy voice whispered, Konechna, it's over. He raised his head. As she lay there, beautiful with a supernatural beauty, with her arms nervelessly resting on the counterpane, she looked at him, and tried to smile at him, but could not. Coming suddenly out of that mysterious and terrible world where he had been living for twenty-two hours, Levin felt himself transported back into his ordinary, everyday world of luminous happiness, and he could not bear it. The cord's long tense snapped. He burst into tears and the sobs of joy which he could not foresee shook his whole body so violently that he could not speak. He knelt beside Kitty, and pressed his lips on her hand, and her gentle fingers answered his caress, and meantime, at the foot of the bed, in the skilful hands of Lizaveta Petrovna, like the small uncertain flame of a lamp, flickered the life of a human being, which just before had not been, and which, with every right and every responsibility, would live— and propagate its kind. He lives. He lives. Yes, it is a boy. Don't be worried, Levin heard Lizaveta's voice saying, while with a trembling hand she slapped the little one's back. Mama, is it true? asked Kitty, and the princess's sobs answered her. And amid the silence, like an indutable answer to the young mother's questions, was heard a voice, absolutely different from the subdued voices speaking in the room. It was the bold, decided, imperious, almost impertinent cry of the new human being, which had come whence no one knew. Just before, if Levin had been told that Kitty was dead, that he himself had died with her, and that their children were angels, and that they were all in the presence of God, he would not have been surprised. And now that he had come back to reality, it took a prodigious effort of thought to comprehend that his wife was alive, that she was doing well, and that this desperately screeching creature was his son. Kitty was saved, her suffering was past, and he was inexpressibly happy. That he could understand, and it made him happy. But the child! Whence? Why? What was it? He could not want himself to the thought of it. It seemed to him somehow too much, too overwhelming, and it was long before he became accustomed to it. End of chapter 15
Part Seven, Chapter Sixteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. The old prince Sergey Ivanovitch and Stefan Arkadyevitch met at Levin's the next morning about ten o'clock, and after they talked about the little mother, they began to converse about irrelevant topics. Levin listened to them, and involuntarily remembering what had taken place, what had been going on that morning, he also remembered what he himself had been but a few hours before. It was as if a hundred years had passed since then. He felt that he was on some unattainable height from which he endeavoured to descend to their level, that he might not offend those with whom he was talking. While talking about indifferent things, he was thinking of his wife, of the state of her health, and of his son, to the idea of whose existence he was trying to accustom himself. The whole world of womanhood, which had taken on a new and incomprehensible significance to him, even after his marriage, occupied such a lofty place that he could not begin to realize it. He heard the men talking about their dinner at the club, but he was thinking, What is she doing now? Is she asleep? How is she? What is in her mind? Is the son Dmitri crying? And, in the midst of the conversation, in the midst of a sentence, he sprang up and left the room. "'Send word down, if I may see her,' said the old prince. "'Very good. I will at once,' replied Levin, and without pausing he went to her room. She was not asleep, but was softly talking with her mother, making plans about the christening. With clean clothes and with her hair brushed, she lay comfortably arranged in bed, with her hands resting on the counterpane, and a mob cap with blue ribbons on her head, and as her eyes met his she drew him to her by their look. Her face lighted up more and more brightly as he approached her. There was in it that change from the earthly to the superhuman calm which one sees in death, but, instead of a farewell, she welcomed him to a new life. Again an emotion, like that which he had felt during her agony, seized his heart, she took his hand, and asked him if he had slept. He could not answer, but turned his head away, yielding to his weakness. "'I have had a nap, Kostya,' she said, "'and I feel so well now.' She looked at him, and suddenly the expression of her face changed. She heard her baby cry. "'Give him to me, Zavieta Petrovna, and let me show him to his father,' she said. "'There, now, let Papa look.' said Lizaveta Petrovna, taking up and exhibiting something red, strange, and wobbling. Wait, we must change it first. And Lizaveta Petrovna deposited this red, wobbling something on the bed, and proceeded to unswathe it, and then swathe it again, lifting and turning it over with one finger, and shaking some kind of powder over it. Levin, as he looked at the poor little bit of humanity, tried in vain to discover within his soul some paternal sentiments toward it, his only feeling was one of repulsion. But when they took off its things, and he saw its tiny delicate arms and legs, still saffron-colored, and its still tinier fingers, and even a thumb differentiated from the others, and when he saw Lizaveta Petrovna handling its little, waving arms, just as if they were delicate springs, and putting them into linen garments, such pity seized him, and such terror lest she should hurt it, that he made a gesture to stop her. Lizaveta Petrovna laughed. "'Never fear, never fear,' said she. 
When the child was dressed and metamorphosed into a regular doll, Lizaveta Petrovna tossed him up and down, as if proud of her work, and held him off so that Levin might see his son in all his beauty. Kitty, not taking her eyes from him, was alarmed. "'Give him to me! Give him to me!' she cried, and she even lifted herself up. "'But, Katerina Alexandrovna, you must know that any such motions are forbidden. Be patient. I will give him to you. But we must let Papasha see what a fine young man we are.' And Lizaveta Petrovna handed to Levin with one hand, the other supported the limp occupant, this strange, weak, red creature, whose head fell limply in its swaddling clothes. All that was to be seen of it was a nose, a pair of eyes that looked in two directions, and smacking lips. Prokrasnui Rabionik, a splendid baby, said Lizaveta Petrovna. Levin drew a deep breath of mortification. This splendid baby inspired him only with a feeling of pity and disgust. It was not at all the feeling that he expected. He turned away while the nurse placed it in Kitty's arms. Suddenly a laugh caused him to raise his head. It was Kitty who laughed. The baby had taken the breast. "'There, that's enough. That's enough,' said Lizaveta Petrovna. But Kitty would not let go of her son, who had gone to sleep on her arm. "'Look at him now,' said she, turning the child so that his father might see him. The little old face suddenly grew still more wrinkled, and the child sneezed. Levin, smiling and hardly able to restrain his tears of tenderness, kissed his wife and left the room. The feelings which this little being awakened in him were entirely different from what he had expected. There was neither pride nor joy in the feeling, but rather a new and painful fear. It was the consciousness that he had become vulnerable in a new way, and this consciousness at first was so acute, his fear lest this poor, defenceless creature might suffer was so poignant, that it drowned the strange feeling of thoughtless joy, and even pride, that rose in his heart when the infant sneezed. End of chapter 16Part 7, Chapter 17 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. The Slippervox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. The affairs of Stefan Arkadyevitch had reached a critical stage. The money brought by the sale of two-thirds of the timber had long ago been spent, and he had obtained from the merchant at a discount of ten percent a large part of the remaining third in advance. Now the merchant would not advance anything more, as Dolly, for the first time in her life asserting her rights to her personal property, had refused her signature to the contract when it was proposed to give a receipt for the sale of the last third of the wood. All the salary was used up for household expenses, and for the payment of unavoidable debts. There was absolutely no money to be had. It was disagreeable and awkward, and Stefan Arkadyevitch felt that it was not to be continued. The reason of it, in his opinion, lay in the fact that he got too small a salary. The place which he held had been very good five years before, but it was so no longer. Petrov, the director of a bank, got twelve thousand. Svintitsky, a member of the council, got seventeen thousand. Mitten, the head of a bank, got fifty thousand. "'Apparently I have been asleep, and they have forgotten me,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch to himself, and he began to keep his eyes and ears open, and at the end of the winter he discovered a very good place, 
and matured his attack upon it, beginning at Moscow through his uncles, his aunts, and his friends, and then, when the time seemed ripe in the spring, he himself went down to Petersburg. It was one of those lucrative, sinecure places which nowadays are found, varying in importance, worth anything from one thousand to fifty thousand roubles a year. This place was in the commission of the Consolidated Agency for the Mutual Credit Balance of the Southern Railway and Banking Establishments. The place, like all such places, required at once such varied talents and such extraordinary activity that it was hard to find them united in one person. But since it was hopeless to find any one with all these qualities, it was certainly better that the man put in should be an honest rather than a dishonest man. Now Stefan Arkadyevitch was an honest man in every sense of the term, for in Moscow the word chesnui, meaning honest, has two significations, depending on its accent. They speak of an honest agent, an honest writer, an honest journal, an honest institution, and it means not only that men or institutions are not dishonest, but that they know how to adapt themselves to circumstances. Stefan Arkadyevitch belonged in Moscow to that class of people who used that convenient word, and, as he passed for honest, he therefore felt that he had a better right than anyone else to that place. This place was worth from 7,000 to 10,000 roubles a year, and Oblonsky could accept this position and not resign his present duties. Everything depended on two ministers, a lady, and two Jews, and, although they were ready to grant what he wished, he had to go to Petersburg to solicit their aid. Moreover, he faithfully promised Anna that he would obtain from Karenin a decisive answer about the divorce, and, having extorted fifty roubles from Dolly, he set out for Petersburg. Sitting in Karenin's library, and listening to his exposition of a project for reforming the status of Russian finance, Stefan Arkadyevitch waited as patiently as he could till he might put in a word about his personal affairs and about Anna. "'Yes, that is very true,' said he, when Alexey Alexandrovitch took off the pince-nez, without which he could not read now, and looked inquiringly at his brother-in-law. "'That is very true in detail, but nevertheless the leading principle of our age is liberty.' "'Yes, but I advocate another principle which embraces freedom.' replied Alexey Alexandrovitch, accenting the word embraces, and putting on his pince-nez to read over the passage where he had said that very thing. And, turning over the pages of his elegantly written manuscript, with its wide margins, he again read the concluding paragraph. For if I sustain the protectionist system, it is not for the advantage of private individuals, but for the general good, for all classes alike, both low and high, and it is that which they will not understand, added he, looking over his pince-nez at Oblonsky, absorbed as they are in their personal interests, and so easily satisfied with phrases. Stefan Arkadyevitch knew that when Karenin began to speak of what was said and done by those who were opposed to his views, and who were the source of all evil in Russia, he was nearing the end, and so he willingly renounced his principle of liberty, and agreed with him. Alexey Alexandrovitch came to a pause, and turned over the leaves of his manuscript with a thoughtful air. "'Oh, by the way,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, "'I wanted to ask you, in case you should meet Pomorsky, to say a little word to him for me, that I should very much like to be appointed a member of the Commission of the Combined Agencies of the Mutual Credit Balance of the Railways of the South. 
to Stepan Arkadyevitch the name of this position which was so dear to his heart was already very familiar, and he could rattle it off with great rapidity and without making a mistake. Alexey Alexandrovitch asked what the functions of this new commission were to be, and then he reflected. It seemed to him that the existence of this commission was directly opposed to his projects of reform. But as the operations of this commission were very complicated, and his own projects of reform occupied a very vast field, he felt that he could not settle this question at a glance, and, taking off his pince-nez, said, "'Without doubt I could speak to him. But why are you especially desirous to have this place?' "'The salary is good, nine thousand roubles, and my means—' Nine thousand roubles,' repeated Alexey Alexandrovitch, and he frowned. The high emolument of this position reminded him that Stefan Arkadyevitch's superstitious function was directly opposed to the principal feature of his projects, which always inclined to economy. "'I believe, and I show in my pamphlet, that in our day these enormous salaries are the signs of the defectiveness of the economic ascete of our administration.' "'Yes, but what would you have?' said Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Now let us see. A bank director gets ten thousand.' he is worth it, or an engineer gets twenty thousand. These are no sinecures. I pine that salaries are payment for merchandise, and ought to be subject to the law of supply and demand. If salaries are not subject to this law, if, for example, I see two engineers of equal capacity, having pursued the same studies at the Institute, one receiving forty thousand rubles, while the other contents himself with two thousand, or if I see a hussar, who has no special knowledge, become director of a bank with a phenomenal salary, I conclude that these salaries are fixed, not in accordance with the law of supply and demand, but by sheer partiality. And so, here is an abuse, great in itself, and disastrous in its influence on the imperial service. I opine. Stefan Arkadyevitch made haste to interrupt his brother-in-law. Yes, but you will agree that a new and undoubtedly useful institution has been opened, it's a live thing, and it is certainly worth while to have it conducted honestly, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, emphasizing the adjective. But the Muscovite signification of the adjective had no force for Alexey Alexandrovitch. Honesty is only negative merit, he replied. But you will do me a great favor, nevertheless, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, if you will speak a little word to Pomorsky, when you happen to meet him, you know. Yes. Certainly. But it seems to me that this depends more on Bolgarinov, said Alexey Alexandrovitch. Bolgarinov, on his part, is well disposed, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, reddening. Stefan Arkadyevitch reddened at the remembrance of Bolgarinov, because that very morning he had been at the Jew's house, and this visit had remained as an unpleasant recollection. Stefan Arkadyevitch knew perfectly well that the commission of which he wished to become a member was a new, important, and honorable enterprise. But that morning, when Bogarinov, evidently with malice prepense, kept him with other petitioners waiting in his reception room for two hours, the whole affair became awkward to him. Whether it was awkward to him that he, a descendant of Rurik, a prince of Blonsky, had to wait two hours in the Jews' reception room, or because he, for the first time in his life, was not following the example of his ancestors in serving the government, but had got into a new field. At all events, it was awkward. During these two hours of waiting at Bolgarinov's, Stefan Arkadyevitch, briskly walking up and down through the reception room, 
smoothing his side whiskers, occasionally entering into conversation with the other petitioners, and trying to work out a pun on his long waiting at the Jews, diligently concealed from the others, and also from himself, the trying feeling. But all that time he felt awkward and annoyed. He did not know why. It was either because he had not succeeded very well with his pun on the word Jew, how he had to chew on the cud of expectation, or for some other reason. When at last Bulgarinov, with excessive humility, received him, evidently triumphing in his humiliation, and almost refused his request, Stefan Arkadyevitch made haste to forget it all. But now, remembering it again, he reddened with shame. End of chapter 17《パート7 Chapter 18 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. And now I have yet one more thing to talk over with you, and you know what it is about. Anna said Stefan Arkadyevitch, after a moment's silence, and shaking off these disagreeable memories. When Oblonsky spoke on his name, Karenin's face entirely changed. In place of its former vivacity, it took on an expression of corpse-like rigidity and weariness. "'What more do you want of me?' said he, turning about on his armchair and shutting his pince-nez. "'A decision. Some sort of a decision, Alexey Alexandrovitch. I address you not as—' He was going to say, a deceived husband— but fearing that it might hurt his cause, he stopped, and substituted with little appropriateness, not as a statesman, but simply as a man, and a good man, and a Christian. You ought to have pity on her. "'In what way could I, properly?' asked Karenin, quietly. "'Yes, have pity on her. If you saw her as I do—I have seen her all winter—you would pity her.' Her position is cruel. I thought, said Karenin, suddenly, in a piercing, almost whining voice, that Anna Arkadyevna had obtained all that she wished. Oh, Alexey Alexandrovitch, for God's sake, let us not make recriminations. What is past is past, and you know what she is now waiting for and hoping for is... the divorce. But I understood that in case I kept my son, Anna Arkadyevna refused the divorce, and so my silence was equivalent to a reply, and I thought the question settled. I consider it settled, said he, with more and more warmth. For God's sake, don't get angry, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, touching his brother-in-law's knee. This question is not settled. If you will allow me to recapitulate, the affair stands thus. When you separated, you were as great— as magnanimous as was possible to be. You granted her everything, her freedom, even a divorce if she wanted one. She appreciated it. No, you don't think so, but she appreciated it absolutely, to such a degree that, at first, feeling her guilt towards you, she did not, she could not, reason about it at all. She refused everything. But the reality and time have shown her that her position is painful and intolerable. Anna Arkadyevna's life cannot interest me, said Karenin, raising his eyebrows. Permit me to disbelieve that, 
replied Stepan Arkadyevitch, gently. Her position is painful to her, and without any escape whatever. She deserves it, you say. She acknowledges that, and does not complain. She says up and down that she should never dare to ask anything of you. But I, and all her relatives, all who love her, beg and implore you to have pity on her. Why should she suffer? Whose advantage is it? Excuse me, you seem to accuse me of being to blame. Oh, not at all, not at all. Understand me, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, touching Karenin's arm, as if he believed that personal contact would have a mollifying effect on his brother-in-law. I merely say this. Her position is painful, and you can relieve it, and it will not cost you anything. I will so arrange the matter that you shall have no trouble about it. Besides, you have promised. My consent has been already given, and I had supposed that the question of our son had decided the matter. Besides, I hoped that Anna Arkadyevna would in her turn have the generosity to understand. His trembling lips could hardly utter the words, and he turned pale. She leaves all to your magnanimity. She asks, she implores, for only one thing to be relieved from this unendurable position in which she finds herself. She asks for her son. Alexey Alexandrovitch, you are a good man. Just enter for a moment into her feelings. The question of the divorce is for her a matter of life or death. If you had not given your promise, she would have been resigned to her situation and lived in the country. But you did give your promise, and she wrote you and came to Moscow, and there in Moscow, where every familiar face was a knife in her heart, she has been living for six months, every day expecting an answer. Her situation is that of a condemned criminal who, for months, has had the rope around his neck, and does not know whether he is to expect pardon or execution. Pity her, and, besides, I will take care to arrange all. Vos scruples. I am not speaking of that, not of that, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, with some disgust. But perhaps I promised more than I had the right to promise. Then you refuse to do what you have promised. I never refused to do all that I could, but I must have time to consider how far what I promised is permissible. No, Alexey Alexandrovitch, said Oblonsky, leaping to his feet. I do not wish to believe this. She is as unhappy as it is possible for a woman to be, and you cannot refuse such— How far what I promised is permissible? Vous profez d'autre un libre pensieur. But I, as a believer, cannot defy the law of Christianity in a matter so important. But in Christian communities, and here in Russia, divorce is permitted, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. Divorce is permitted by our church, and we see— permitted, but not in this sense. Alexey Alexandrovitch, I don't know you, said Oblonsky, after a moment's silence. You are not the same man you were. Do you not forgive all? And did we not appreciate your magnanimity? Were you not moved by genuine Christian feeling? Weren't you ready to sacrifice everything? You yourself said, If any man will take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also, and now i beg of you said karenin rising suddenly and turning pale with a trembling jaw
"'I beg of you,' he said in a high-pitched voice, "'to cut short, to cut short this conversation.' "'Oh, well, pardon me, pardon me, if I have offended you,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, in confusion, holding out his hand. "'But I had to fulfill the mission I was charged with.' Alexey Alexandrovitch gave him his hand and said, after a moment's reflection, "'I must have time to think about it, and seek for light.' You shall have my final answer day after tomorrow. End of chapter 18 Part 7, Chapter 19 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Stefan Arkadyevitch was going out when Kornai came in and announced, Sergey Alexeyevich. Who is Sergey Alexeyevich? Oblonsky began to ask, but in an instant he remembered. Oh, Sir Rosa, he exclaimed, and here was I, thinking it was some director of a department, he said to himself. Anna begged me to see him. And he recalled the sad, timid expression with which, as he left her, Anna had said to him, You will see him, and can find out what he is doing and where he is, and who is taking care of him, and, Steva, if possible, would it be possible? He knew what she meant by the words, if possible, if it were possible to get the divorce so as to have her son. But now Stefan Arkadyevitch knew that this was out of the question. He was none the less glad to see his nephew again. Alexey Alexandrovitch reminded his brother-in-law that he must not talk to him of his mother, and begged him not even by a word to remind him of her. "'He was very ill after that last interview with his mother, which we were not prepared for,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, "'and for a while we feared for his life. But sensible medical treatment and sea-bathing in the summer restored him to health, and I have followed the doctor's advice, and sent him to school. Activity, being with companions of his own age, have had a happy influence on him. His health is good,' and he is studying well. Why, he's becoming quite a young man. He is no longer Sorosa. He is full-grown, Sergey Alexeyevich, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, with a smile, as a handsome, tall, robust boy, dressed in a kartochka, or jacket, and long trousers, came in briskly and without constraint. The boy had a look of sound health and good spirits. He bowed to his uncle as to a stranger. Then, as he remembered him, he reddened, and, as if offended and angry at something, turned away, and handed his school report to his father. "'Well, that is excellent,' said Karenin. "'You now may go and play.' "'He has grown tall and slender, and lost his childish look, and become a real boy. I like it,' remarked Stefan Arkadyevitch, with a smile. "'Do you remember me?' The boy quickly glanced at his father. I remember you, mon uncle, answered the boy, looking at Stefan Arkadyevitch, and then casting down his eyes. The uncle called the lad to him, and took his hand. Well, how are you? he asked, wanting to talk, but not knowing what to say. The boy, blushing and not answering, hastily withdrew his hand, and, as soon as his uncle had released it, flew away like a bird set free. A year had passed since Sorosa had seen his mother for the last time. During this time he had not even heard anything about her. 
he had been sent to school, and had become acquainted with boys of his own age, and learned to like them. His dreams and recollections about his mother, which after his interview with her had made him ill, now no longer occupied his mind. When they reoccurred to him, he even tried to get rid of them, regarding them as disgraceful for a boy and fit only for girls. He knew that his parents had quarrelled and parted, and that he must accustom himself to the idea of remaining with his father. The sight of his uncle, who looked like his mother, was unpleasant to him, because it awakened memories which caused him shame, and it was still more unpleasant, because, from certain words which he had caught as he entered the door, and by the peculiar expression of his father's and his uncle's faces, he knew that they were talking about his mother and so as not to blame his father, with whom he lived and on whom he was dependent, and especially so as not to give way to a sentiment which he felt was too degrading, he tried not to look at his uncle, who had come to disturb his tranquillity, and not to think of the past. But when, shortly after, Stepan Arkadyevitch went out, he found the boy on the stairs, and he called him to him, and asked him how he spent his spare time, now that he was at school. Sirosa, out of his father's presence, talked freely. "'We have a railroad now,' he said, in answer to his question. "'Just see. These two are sitting on the seat. They are passengers, and there is one man trying to stand on the seat, and there they all are going, and by means of our arms and our belts we go through the whole length of the hall, and the doors open in front. And I tell you it's very hard here for the conductor.' "'Is that the one standing?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch, amused. Yes, he has to be bold and skillful, because the train comes to a very sudden stop, and he might get thrown over. Well, that is no joke, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, sadly, as he looked at the boy's bright eyes, which were like his mother's, and which had already lost their childish look of innocence. And, although he had promised Alexey Alexandrovitch not to speak of Anna, he could not resist. Do you remember your mother? he asked suddenly. No, I do not. Sir Rosa answered quickly, turning red, and his uncle could not make him talk any more. When the Russian tutor found Sir Rosa on the stairs half an hour after, he could not make out whether he was crying or was sulky. "'Did you hurt yourself when you fell?' he asked. "'I said this was a dangerous game, and shall I have to tell your father?' "'If I had, no one should find it out,' answered the boy. "'Well, what's the matter, then?' "'Let me alone.' What is it to him whether I remember or not? Why did he remind me? Let me be! And the boy seemed to defy not only his tutor, but the whole world. End of chapter 19 Part 7, Chapter 20 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Stepan Arkadyevitch, as usual, did not waste his time at Petersburg. He had not only his business to attend to, his sister's divorce and his new position to look after, but moreover, as he said, to refresh himself after musty Moscow. For Moscow, in spite of its café chantants and its omnibuses, was still only a stagnant marsh. Stefan Arkadyevitch always felt that this was so. Living in Moscow, especially in proximity to his family, he was conscious that his spirit flagged. 
when his life in moscow was long unbroken by a trip to petersburg he even began to be annoyed by his wife's bad temper and reproaches and to worry over his health the education of his children and the petty details of the household he even went so far as to be disturbed about his debts as soon as he set foot in petersburg and entered that circle where life was really life and not vegetating as in moscow immediately all such thoughts disappeared like wax in the fire his wife he had just been talking with prince chechensky prince chechensky had a wife and a family grown-up boys pages now and he had another establishment outside the law and in this also there were children but though the first family was well enough in a way prince chechensky felt happier with his second family and he had introduced his oldest legitimate son into his other family. He told Stefan Arkadyevitch he considered it a good way to train him and develop him. What would have been said about that in Moscow? Children. In Petersburg fathers didn't trouble themselves with their children. Children were educated in institutions, and there was no sign of that crazy notion in vogue in Moscow. Lvov shared in it, that children should have all the luxuries, and their parents nothing but care and trouble. The government service? The service, too, was not that tiresome, hopeless treadmill that it was in Moscow. Here there was interest in the service, meetings with men in authority, mutual services, opportune words spoken, the knowledge of how to take advantage of chances, and a man might suddenly find himself high in his career, like Bryantsev, whom Stefan Arkadyevitch met that evening, and who was now a leading dignitary. Yes, there was something interesting in the service here. The Petersburg views about money especially appealed to Stefan Arkadyevitch. Bartnyansky, who had spent at least fifty thousand roubles, judging by the rate at which he was living, made a remark which deeply impressed him. Just before dinner, as they were talking together, Stefan Arkadyevitch had said, you seem to have some connection with Mordvinsky. You might do me a favor. Please say a little word to him in my behalf. It is a place which I should like to have. Member of the commission. Well, I won't forget. Only what pleasure can you have in attending to this railroad business with the Jews? Of course, if you want it. But still, it's a wretched business. Stefan Arkadyevitch did not say to him that it was no sinecure, Bartnyansky would not have known what he meant. I need money. I must have something to live on. But don't you live, then? Yes, but in debt. Much? asked Bartnyansky, sympathetically. Yes, twenty thousand roubles. Bartnyansky broke out into a gay laugh. Oh, happy man! I have a million and a half of debts, and not a rouble, and as you see, I live all the same and Stefan Arkadyevitch saw that this was not mere words, but was actually true. Zivakhov was in debt three hundred thousand, and had not a kopeck. Petrovsky had spent five millions, and yet went on living just as before, and had charge of the finances, and had only twenty thousand salary. Petersburg had a delightful physical influence on Stefan Arkadyevitch. It made him feel younger. In Moscow he sometimes detected gray hairs, he would fall asleep after dinner. It made him breathe hard to go upstairs. He was dull in the company of young women. He no longer danced at balls. At Petersburg he experienced what the sixty-year-old Prince Pyotr Oblonsky 
who had just returned from abroad, told him one evening. "'We don't know how to live here,' said Pyotr Oblonsky. "'For example, I spent the summer at Baden, and now, honestly, I feel like a new man. I see a young woman, and—hm. I enjoy my dinner. I can take my wine. I'm well and vigorous. When I come back to Russia, I have to see my wife, have even to go into the country. You wouldn't believe it, but in a couple of weeks I am in my dressing-gown. Good-bye to the young beauties. I am old. Think only of the salvation of my soul. To make me over, I go to Paris. Stepan Arkadyevitch felt the same difference as Pyotr Oblonsky did. In Moscow he reached such a low ebb of vitality that he felt sure that, if he ever attained the same age, he too should be driven to thinking about the salvation of his soul. In Petersburg he was conscious of being a well-regulated man. Between the Princess Betsy Tversky and Stepan Arkadyevitch there had been for a long time a very strange relationship. He always jested with her, and he always said very improper things by way of jest, knowing that they pleased her more than anything else. The day after his interview with Karinin, Stepan Arkadyevitch went to see her, and, feeling particularly young, he conducted himself with more than his usual levity, and went so far in his impropriety that he could not retrieve his steps, and, unfortunately, he felt that she was not only displeased, but even opposed to him. Yet this tone had been established because it generally amused her. So he was glad to have the Princess Mayakaya interrupt their tete-a-tete. "'Ah, here you are,' said she, when she saw him. "'Well, and how is your poor sister? Don't look at me so. Since women who are a thousand times worse than she throw stones at her, I think she did quite right.' I can't forgive Vronsky for not letting me know that she was in Petersburg. I should have gone to see her, and gone with her everywhere. Give her my love. Now tell me about her. Well, her position is a very painful one. She, Stepan Arkadyevitch began, in the simplicity of his heart, taking the princess's words as genuine money, when she said, Tell me about your sister. But the princess, in her usual way, interrupted him and began to talk herself. She did what everybody but myself does, and hides, but she was not willing to lie, and she did right, and she has at least belettered herself in having forsaken that imbecile—I beg your pardon—your brother-in-law. Everybody said he was a genius. A genius! I was the only one who said he was a goose, and people have come to be of my opinion, now that he has taken up with the Countess Lydia and Landau. I should not like to agree with everybody. It's stupid. But this time I can't help it. Now please explain something to me, said Stepan Arkadyevitch. What does this mean? Yesterday I was at his house, talking of the divorce, and I asked him for a definite answer. My brother-in-law said to me that he could not give me an answer without reflection, and this morning I received an invitation from Lydia Ivanovna for this evening, instead of an answer. Now— "'That's just it!' cried the princess, delighted. "'They will consult Landau as to what to say.' "'Why Landau? Who is Landau?' "'What? You don't know Jules Landau? La femme Jules Landau? La clairvoyante? "'He also, in my opinion, is an imbecile. "'But on him depends your sister's fate. "'That's what comes of living in the provinces.' Landau, you must know, was commis of a mercantile house at Paris, 
and went to see a doctor. He fell asleep in the waiting-room, and, while he was asleep, gave advice to all the sick. Most astonishing advice. Then Yuri Melyadinsky's wife, you know, he was sick, called him to see her husband. He treated her husband. In my opinion, he didn't do him any good, for Melyadinsky is just as sick as he was before. But his wife and he believe in Landau. They took him into their house. They brought him to Russia. Naturally, people here have thrown themselves at him. He treats everybody. He cured the Countess Bezoboff, and she fell so in love with him that she has adopted him. How? Adopted him? Yes, adopted him. He isn't Landau any more, but Count Bezuboff. But Lydia, and I like her very much in spite of her crankiness, must needs be smitten with him, and nothing that she and Alexey Alexandrovitch take up is decided without consulting him. Your sister's fate is, therefore, in the hands of this Count Bezuboff, alias Landau. End of chapter 20《パート7 Chapter 21 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Read by Marianne Spiegel After an excellent dinner with Bartnyansky and considerable cognac Stefan Arkadyevitch went to the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's a little later than the hour designated Who is with the Countess the Frenchman he asked of the Swiss as he noticed beside Alexey Alexandrovitch's well-known overcoat a curious mantle with clasps. "'Alexey Alexandrovitch Karinin and the Count Bezoboff,' answered the servant, stolidly. "'Princess Mayakaya was right,' thought Oblonsky, as he went upstairs. "'Strange. It would be a good thing to cultivate the Countess. She has great influence. If she would say a little word in my behalf to Pomorsky, it would be just the thing.' It was still very light outdoors, but the blinds were drawn in the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's little drawing-room, and the lamps were lighted. At a round table on which was a lamp, the Countess and Alexey Alexandrovitch were sitting, engaged in a confidential talk. A short, lean, pale man, with knock-kneed legs and a feminine figure, with long hair falling over his coat-collar, and handsome, glowing eyes, was examining the portraits on the wall at the other end of the room. Stefan Arkadyevitch, after having greeted the Countess and Alexey Alexandrovitch, involuntarily turned round to look once more at this singular personage. "'Monsieur Landau,' said the Countess, gently, and with a precaution which struck Oblonsky. The introduction was made. Landau hastily glanced around, and, coming up, placed his moist, unresponsive hand in Oblonsky's, and immediately went back to look at the portraits. Lydia Ivanovna and Alexey Alexandrovitch exchanged significant glances. "'I am very glad to see you to-day,' said the Countess to Stefan Arkadyevitch, motioning him to a chair. "'You noticed,' added she, in a low voice, glancing at the Frenchman, "'that I introduced him to you by the name of Landau. But his name is really Count Bezoboff, as you probably know. Only he is not fond of the title.' "'Yes, I heard about it.' said Stefan Arkadyevitch. It is said he perfectly cured Countess Bezoboff. She came to see me to-day, said the Countess, addressing Alexey Alexandrovitch, and it was sad to see her. This separation is terrible for her, 
It is such a blow to her. Then he is positively going. Yes, he is going to Paris. Yesterday he heard a voice, said Lydia Ivanovna, looking at Stepan Arkadyevitch. Oh, a voice, repeated he, feeling that it was necessary to use great prudence among these people, where things occurred, or might occur, without his being able to explain them. A moment's silence ensued, at the end of which the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, as if accidentally stumbling on the chief topic of their conversation, said, with a sweet smile, addressing Oblonsky, "'I have known of you for a long time, and I am delighted to make your acquaintance. Les amis de nos amis sont nos amis. But to be truly friends, we must know what is passing in the souls of those we love, and I fear you do not with regard to Alexey Alexandrovitch. You understand what I mean,' she said, raising her beautiful, dreamy eyes. "'I understand in part that Alexey Alexandrovitch's position,' answered Oblonsky, not understanding very well what she was talking about, and preferring to confine himself to generalities. "'The change is not in his external position,' said the Countess, solemnly, and at the same time looking tenderly at Alexey Alexandrovitch, who had risen to join Landau. "'It is his heart which has changed. A new heart has been given to him, and I very much fear that you do not realize sufficiently the great transformation which has taken place in him.' "'That is, in a general way, I can perceive the change in him. We have always been friends, and now,' said Oblonsky, answering the deep gaze of the Countess with a tender one, as he queried with which of the two ministers she could do him the most effective service. This transformation cannot diminish his love for his neighbor. On the contrary, the change which has taken place must increase love. But I fear you don't understand me. Will you not have some tea? she asked, looking toward a lackey who entered with the tea-tray. Not altogether, Countess. Of course, his misfortune. Yes, he underwent a misfortune, but it became the highest happiness because his heart was renewed, said she, raising her eyes lovingly to Stepan Arkadyevitch. I believe I shall have to get her to speak to them both, thought Oblonsky. Oh, assuredly, Countess, said he, but I think that these changes are so personal that no one likes to speak of them, even to his most intimate friends. On the contrary, we ought to speak and to help one another. Yes, without doubt, but there are such differences of conviction, and, moreover, and Oblonsky smiled unctuously. There cannot be differences in regard to sacred truth. Oh, yes, of course, but— Stefan Arkadyevitch grew confused, and stopped speaking. He perceived that the Countess was talking about religion. "'It seems to me that he's going to sleep,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, approaching the Countess and speaking in a significant whisper. Stefan Arkadyevitch turned round. Landau was seated near the window, with his elbow leaning on the arm and back of a chair, and his head bowed as he saw the looks turned toward him. He raised his head, and smiled in a naive and childlike manner. "'Don't pay attention to him,' said the Countess, pushing a chair toward Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'I have noticed,' she began, but was interrupted by a lackey bringing her a letter. She read it through with extraordinary rapidity, sent a reply, and resumed the thread of her discourse. "'I have noticed that Muscovites, the men especially, are very indifferent to religion.' "'Oh, no, Countess,' 
"'I think that Muscovites have the reputation of being very pious,' replied Stepan Arkadyevitch. "'But as far as I have observed, you yourself,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, with his weary smile, "'I am sorry to say, belong to that category of the indifference.' "'Is it possible to be indifferent?' cried Lydia Ivanovna. "'I am not indifferent, but rather in the attitude of expectation,' answered Oblonsky, with his most agreeable smile. "'I do not yet think that the time for me to settle such questions has come yet.' Alexey Alexandrovitch and the Countess exchanged glances. "'We can never know whether the time for us has come or not,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch sternly. We ought not even to think whether we are prepared or not. The blessing does not follow human calculations, does not always light upon the most deserving, but comes to those who are unprepared. A witness saw. It seems that it isn't to be now, murmured the countess, following with her eyes the movements of the Frenchman. Landau got up and joined them. May I listen? asked he. Oh, yes, I do not wish to disturb you said the countess tenderly. Sit down with us. The essential thing is not to close one's eyes to the light, continued Alexey Alexandrovitch. Ah, if you knew what a blessing we experience when we feel his constant presence in our souls, said the countess Lydia Ivanovna, with an ecstatic smile. But a man may feel himself incapable of rising to such a height, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, convinced that the heights of religion were not his forte, but fearing to offend a person who, by one word to Pomorsky, might get him the place that he wanted. "'You mean that sin may prevent him?' asked Lydia Ivanovna. "'But that is a mistaken view. For him who believes, there is no more sin. Sin is already redeemed. Pardon,' she asked, as the lackey brought her another note. She read it and answered verbally. "'Say to-morrow, at the Grand Duchess's.' Then she continued. For the believer there is no sin. Yes, but faith without works is dead, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, recalling this phrase of his catechism, with a smile establishing his independence. That is the most famous passage in the epistle of St. James, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, in a reproachful tone, looking at the countess, as if to recall frequent discussions on the subject. How much harm the false interpretation of that passage has done— it has driven more persons from the faith than anything else. I have no works, therefore I cannot believe, is the logical conclusion from it. It means exactly the opposite. It is our monks who claim to be saved by works, by their fastings, their abstinences, said the countess with an air of fastidious scorn. Our way is far better and easier, she added, looking at Oblonsky with that scorching smile with which, at court, she was wont to wither young maids of honor, disconcerted at the newness of their position. "'We are saved by Christ, who suffered for us. We are saved by faith,' resumed Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'Vous comprehends l'anglaise?' asked Lydia Ivanovna, and, receiving an affirmative answer, she rose and took a small book from a side-table. "'Here I am going to read to you, safe and happy, or under the wing,' said she, with a look of interrogation at Karenin. "'It is very short,' added she, resuming her seat and opening the book. "'Here the way is described by which faith is attained, and the joy which is higher than any that earth can give, which fills the soul of the believer. 
A man who believes cannot be unhappy, because he is no longer alone. Yes, and here, you see, she was about to go on reading, when again the lackey appeared. From Borosden, say to-morrow, at two o'clock. Yes, she said with a sigh, marking the place in the book with her finger, and looking up with her pensive, loving eyes. This is the way true faith is acquired. Are you acquainted with Marie Sanina? You have heard of her great affliction. She lost her only son. She was in despair. Well, how is it now? She found this friend. She thanks God for the death of her child. Such is the happiness faith can give. Ah, yes. This is very— murmured Stefan Arkadyevitch, glad to be able to keep silent during this reading, and to think over his affairs a little. I shall do better not to ask anything to-day, thought he. Only how can I get out of this without compromising myself? This will be dull for you, said the Countess de Landau. You don't understand English, but this is short. Oh, I shall understand, said he with a smile, and he shut his eyes. Alexey Alexandrovitch and the Countess significantly looked at one another, and the reading began. End of chapter 21《Stefan Arkadyevitch felt perfectly bewildered by these strange, and to him unwanted discourses to which he had been listening. After the stagnation of Moscow, the complication of life in Petersburg as a general thing had an enlivening effect on him, but he liked it and was at home in it when he was among those whom he knew well. In this unfamiliar environment he was bewildered and stupefied, and could not make anything out of it. As he listened to the reading, and saw the brilliant eyes of Landau, naive or knavish, he could not tell which, fixed on him, he felt a peculiar heaviness in his head. The most heterogeneous thoughts went whirling through his brain. Marie Sanina is happy about having lost her son. It would be good if I could only smoke. But to be saved, one needs only to believe. The monks do not understand about this, but the Countess Lydia Ivanovna does. What makes my head feel so heavy? Is it the brandy, or the strangeness of all this? I have done nothing out of the way as yet, but I shan't venture to ask anything to-day. It is said they make you say your prayers. Suppose they should make me say mine. That would be too nonsensical. What stuff that is she is reading. But she reads well. Landau Bezabov. Why is he Bezabov? Suddenly Stefan Arkadyevitch felt that his lower jaw was irresistibly beginning to accomplish a yawn. He smoothed his whiskers to conceal the yawn and shook himself but the next moment he felt sure that he was asleep, and even beginning to snore. The voice of the Countess Lydia Ivanovna waked him, saying, "'He's asleep.' Stefan Arkadyevitch waked with a start, feeling a consciousness of guilt, but instantly he was relieved to find that the words, "'He's asleep,' had reference not to himself, but to Landau. The Frenchman was as sound asleep as Stefan Arkadyevitch had been, but Stefan Arkadyevitch's nap would have offended them. He did not think of this at the time, 
so strange did everything seem. But Landau's rejoiced them exceedingly, and especially the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. Mon ami, said the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, cautiously so as not to disturb him, and picked up the folds of her silk gown, in the enthusiasm of the moment, calling Karenin, not Alexey Alexandrovitch, but, Mon ami, donnez-le la main, voyez-vous Shh, said she to the lackey, who once more entered the parlour with a message. I can't receive it now. The Frenchman slept, or pretended to sleep, leaning his head on the back of his armchair, and resting his hand on his knee, but making feeble gestures, as if he were trying to catch something. Alexey Alexandrovitch got up, and, cautiously, though he tripped over a table as he did so, stepped over to the chair, and put his hand into the Frenchman's hand. Stefan Arkadyevitch also got up, and opening his eyes wide, and trying to decide whether he were asleep or not, looked from one to the other, and felt his ideas growing more and more confused. Que la personne qui a la donnière, ce qui demande, quel sortait? The person who came in last, the one who is questioning, let him go away, murmured the Frenchman without opening his eyes. Vous m'escurez, mais vous vous, revenez vers dix and Cormouille Domaine. You will excuse me, but you understand. I come back at ten o'clock, or, still better, tomorrow. Quelle sorte, repeated the Frenchman impatiently. C'est moi, non ce pas? asked Oblonsky, and at an affirmative sign, forgetting what he was going to ask Lydia Ivanovna, forgetting his sister's affairs, with one single desire to escape as soon as possible, hastened out on his tiptoes, and rushed down into the street, as if he were fleeing from a pest-house, and for a long time talked and jested with his driver, so as to bring back his spirits. At the French theatre, which he reached in time for the last act, and afterward over his champagne, at the Tartars, Stefan Arkadyevitch gradually began to breathe more freely in the friendly atmosphere. And nevertheless, all that evening he was very far from being himself. When he returned to the house of Pyotr Oblonsky, where he made his home in Petersburg, he found a note from Betsy. She wrote him that she was very desirous of finishing their talk, and urged him to call the next day. He had hardly finished reading this note and making up a face at it, when heavy shuffling steps were heard downstairs, as of men lifting some heavy object. Stefan Arkadyevitch went out to see what it was. It was the rejuvenated Pyotr Oblonsky, who was so tipsy that he could not walk upstairs, but when he caught sight of Stefan Arkadyevitch, he ordered his attendants to put him on his feet, and, clinging to Stefan Arkadyevitch's arm, he managed to reach his room, where he began to relate how he had spent the evening, till he fell asleep. Stefan Arkadyevitch himself was in such a weak state of mind that, contrary to his custom, he did not fall asleep quickly. What he had heard and seen during the day was disgusting, but more disgusting than anything else was the recollection of the evening at the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's. The next day he received from Alexey Alexandrovitch a flat refusal in the matter of the divorce, and knew that this decision was based on the words which the Frenchman had uttered during his slumber, real or feigned. End of chapter 22
Part Seven, Chapter Twenty Three of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. In order that anything may be accomplished in family life, it is requisite that between the husband and wife there should be either absolute discord or loving harmony. But when the relations between the two are uncertain, and there is neither the one nor the other, nothing can be accomplished. Many families remain for years in places of which the husband and wife both are tired and disgusted, simply because there is neither full discord nor full concord. Unendurable to Vronsky and Anna was their life in Moscow, in the heat and dust, when the sun shone, not now with its springtime beauty, but with its summer fervor and all the trees along the boulevards had been long in leaf, and the leaves were already thick with dust. Though they had long before decided to remove to Vazdvizenskoya, still they continued to live in Moscow, which was detestable to them both, and the reason for this was that of late there had been no harmony between them. The exasperation which tended to keep them apart had no tangible cause, and all attempts at an explanation instead of closing the chasm, only widened it. It was an internal irritation which, as far as she was concerned, had for its source the diminution of his love for her, and on his part his annoyance because, thanks to her, he found himself placed in an embarrassing position, which she, instead of trying to relieve, made still more difficult. Neither he nor she formulated any definite complaints, but each considered the other in the wrong and at every opportunity tried to make this evident. She considered that he, with all his habits, ideas, desires, with all his spiritual and physical tendencies, had one distinguishing quality, the power of loving women, and this love, she felt, ought by rights to be wholly concentrated on her. This love had diminished. Consequently, in her opinion, a part of this love must necessarily be transferred to others, or to some other woman, and— she was jealous. She was jealous, not of any definite woman, but of his diminished love for her. Having as yet no definite object for her jealousy to rest on, she was on the watch for one. On the slightest pretext, she would transfer her jealousy from one person to another. Sometimes she suspected him of low amours, which he might enter into as an unmarried man about town. Sometimes she distrusted ladies, whom he might meet in society. Then again, with the imaginary young lady, whom he would be likely to marry in case he broke with her. This form of jealousy especially tormented her, for the reason that he himself had carelessly, in a moment of confidence one day, spoken of his mother's lack of tact in having ventured to propose to him to marry the young Princess Sorokin. And being thus jealous, Anna felt indignant with him, and kept finding reasons for her indignation, for all the painfulness of her position, she blamed him. She considered him responsible for her painful state of expectancy, which she was enduring in Moscow, as it were suspended between heaven and earth, for the uncertainty in which she lived, for Alexey Alexandrovitch's delay and indecision, and for her loneliness. If he loved her, he would understand the difficulty of her position, and save her from it. He was to blame because she was living in Moscow, and not in the country, he could not live in the country, as she wanted to do. He wanted society, and so condemned her to this horrible position, the trials of which he could not comprehend. 
and, again, he was responsible for depriving her forever of her son. Even those rare moments of tenderness which they occasionally enjoyed did not appease her. She now detected in his tenderness a shade of calmness, of assurance, which he had never before shown, and which exasperated her. It was getting dark. Vronsky was at a gentleman's dinner, and Anna, while waiting for him, had taken refuge in his library, where the noise of the street was less oppressive than in the rest of the house. She walked up and down, going over in memory their last altercation. As she recalled in memory the insulting words that had been spoken, and tried to think what had led to it, she at last remembered how the quarrel had begun. For some time she found it impossible to believe that any dissension could have arisen from such an inoffensive conversation, from a subject which was so unimportant to any one. But such was the fact. It all began from his having made sport of women's gymnasia, declaring them unnecessary, and she had taken up the cudgels in their defense. He had disrespectfully attacked the education of women in general, and had said that Hannah, Anna's English protégé, had not the slightest need of knowing anything about physics. That had irritated Anna. She saw in it a derogatory reference to her own occupations, and she conjured up and uttered a phrase which was meant to repay him for the pain he inflicted on her. I did not expect that you would comprehend me and my feelings as a man who really loved would, but I expected at least some delicacy, said she and in reality he had reddened with vexation, and made some unpleasant remark. She did not remember what retort she then made, but, whatever it was, he had said with a manifest intention of hurting her feelings, "'I confess your devotion to that girl does not interest me, because I can see nothing in it but affectation.' This cruelty of his, with which he demolished the fabric which she had with such labour erected so as to endure the trials of her life, this injustice of his in accusing her of pretense and affectation drove her frantic. It is very unfortunate that only what is low and material is comprehensible to you, she had retorted, and she left the room. When, in the evening, he came to see her, the discussion was not resumed, but they both felt that it was not forgotten. All this day he had not been at home, and she was so lonely and wretched, as she thought of their quarrels, that she resolved to forget everything, to ask his forgiveness, and to take the blame on herself, so as to bring about a reconciliation at any cost. I am to blame. I am irritable. I am absurdly jealous. I will make it up with him, and we will leave for the country, and there I shall be calmer, she thought. Affectation. Nenaturalno. She suddenly remembered the word which had so affronted her, above all in his intention of causing her pain by it. I know what he meant. He meant by affected that I did not love my daughter, but loved another's child. What does he know of the love a child can inspire? Has he the least idea what I sacrificed for him in giving up Sarosa? But this desire to wound me! No, he loves another woman. It must be so. And seeing that, even while she wanted to calm herself, she was once more going over the circle she had so many times traversed, and was once more returning to the same state of irritation. She was horror-struck. "'Is it wholly out of the question? Can I not attach him to myself?' she queried, and then she began at the beginning again. "'He is true. He is honourable. He loves me. 
I love him. In a day or two dissension will be ended. What is necessary? Calmness, gentleness, and I shall bring him back to me. Yes, now, when he comes, I will tell him that I was to blame, although I was not to blame, and we will go off. And, in order not to think any more, and not to give way to her irritation, she gave orders to bring down her trunks, to begin preparations for departure. At ten o'clock, Vronsky came in. End of chapter 23